0: You are listening to the July 2023 edition of the Postal Record, the magazine for the National Association of Letter Carriers.
1: I'm NALC President Brian Renfro, and this is my president's message from the July 2023 Postal Record entitled, The Importance of Structure and Networks. Organizations exist in many forms, whether a business, government entity, social, or sports club, neighborhood association, or in our case, a union, all successful organizations have something in common. Each has a structure that lends itself to the organization's effectiveness and success in achieving its goals. Let's first look at an organization we're familiar with, the United States Postal Service. There have been a lot of structural changes over the years in the Postal Service. In fact, the latest large structural change is now in process With the network modernization plan and the realignment of areas and districts in recent years. While it's too early to determine the ultimate impact of these latest changes at USPS, those of us who have been around for a while have seen many such changes in the past. Some changes have been successful, others, well, we all know how many of those turned out. There are times when structures must evolve to accommodate change in order to remain as effective as they can be. I firmly believe that a strong foundational structure combined with continuous and thoughtful evaluation and modification where necessary is the path to maintaining the most effective structure for our union. Thankfully we have a long and proud history of doing just that. The past leaders and members of NALC established the union's governance structure at the branch, state, regional, and national levels. This foundational structure is laid out in the NALC Constitution. Our structure has served us well and continues to do so today. However, we have never accepted that it will not need to change. Over the past several conventions, the delegates have discussed and debated the effectiveness of our current structure. We've discussed the pros and cons of potential modifications. A few modifications have been made to officer duties and responsibilities through constitutional amendments adopted by the delegates in recent years. But thus far, the delegates have chosen to maintain the overall structure of NALC. This debate and discussion at our conventions is healthy for us as a union. There is one thing I know for a fact. The members of the NALC are always right. We have 134 years of history to prove it. Whether through debate on proposed constitutional amendments or general discussion, I'm sure that these conversations will continue at the Boston Convention in 2024 and beyond. I'm also sure that the delegates to future conventions will make the decision to modify our governance structure if and when it is the best move to allow us to most effectively represent our members. Quality representation of our members always has been and always will be NALC's primary focus. Officers at each level of our union have responsibilities, including representational responsibility, in a variety of areas such as grievance arbitration, organizing, workers' compensation, and our legislative and political efforts. While the governance structure of our union hasn't changed in recent years, we have grown the networks of representation in each of these areas. NELC's full-time advocates, regional grievance assistants, regional workers' compensation assistants, and legislative and political organizers have beefed up our networks in each of these areas. They provide direct representation as well as support by training other NALC representatives and supporting the work of NALC officers at the branch, state, regional, and national levels. One direct impact of the investment in these networks can be seen at the branch level. Activists often have been recruited by their branch leaders and educated by those plugged into these networks to allow them to become stronger representatives or to specialize in a particular area. Our union has always been blessed with the most active membership in the United States labor movement. I speak on behalf of headquarters officers and staff, our regions, state associations and branches in saying this, we are committed to continuing to invest in these networks to provide the best representation we possibly can for our members. While we will continue to invest in growing these traditional networks, we are also committed to expanding opportunities to learn and plug into these networks through online and electronic tools that interested members may use in their own time. We are excited about the endless possibilities of using technology to supplement, not replace, the robust training that already is a large part of our representational networks. Embracing the long-standing portions of our union structure that have made us successful, while continuing to evaluate the need for change and driving network growth that will allow us to better represent our members is an approach that has been successful for letter carriers for well over a century. It will continue to be successful far into the future.
0: News from Washington. House bill to allow USPS to ship alcohol reintroduced. Representatives Dan Newhouse, Republican Washington, Jennifer Wexton, Democrat Virginia, and seven other co-sponsors reintroduced the USPS Shipping Equity Act, House Resolution 3721, on May 25th. The bill, which is identical to legislation introduced last Congress, would allow the Postal Service to ship beer, wine, and other alcoholic beverages directly from licensed producers and retailers to legal customers. Current law prohibits the Postal Service from shipping alcoholic goods, making private shippers, such as FedEx and UPS, the only shipping operation for wineries, breweries, and other producers to have goods delivered directly to customers. This bill would allow USPS to ship these beverages and would generate an estimated $190 million annually in new revenue for the Postal Service. If passed into law, USPS would have two years to develop regulations ensuring that the Postal Service is prepared to safely deliver alcoholic beverages to adult customers with appropriate identification checks. The bill would also expand to -to direct-to-consumer alcoholic shipments. Unlike private shippers, USPS delivers to every address in the nation. The current ban on the Postal Service's right to ship alcohol limits access to these products for many Americans, especially in rural areas. NALC applauds Representatives Newhouse and Wexton for reintroducing the USPS Shipping Equity Act, NALC Executive Vice President Paul Barner said. The bill is an important step toward meeting the growing needs of our customers while generating revenue for the Postal Service, expanding the agency's service opportunities, and supporting small businesses nationwide. Family Act Introduced in Congress Representative Rosa DeLauro, Democrat, Connecticut, and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat, New York, introduced an updated version of the Family and Medical Insurance Leave, F-A-M-I-L-Y, or Family, Act, House Resolution 3481, Senate 1714, on May 17th. The Family Act would provide 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave for all workers, including postal employees. The updated bill expands the types of caregiving relationships that would be covered. Workers could use this leave for personal illness, as well as caring for a spouse, registered domestic partner, parent, child, parent-in-law, child-in-law, grandparents, step relatives, and more. Additionally, the bill would allow workers to use the leave for non-medical safety needs relating to sexual or domestic violence. Family Act would use a progressive wage replacement rate for benefits that would supply 85% on the first $1,257 of monthly wages, 69% of monthly wages from $1,258 to $3,500 and 50% of monthly wages from $3,501 to $6,200. Currently, federal employees, including postal employees, are entitled to 12 weeks of medical and family leave under the Family and Medical Leave Act, but it is not guaranteed paid leave. A version of the Family Act has been introduced in every Congress since 2013. NALC will update letter carriers on any future action by lawmakers. Debt Limit Deal Signed Into Law Following a contentious period of negotiations among President Biden, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican California, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat New York, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat New York, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, a deal to avert a default on the nation's debt was agreed upon and signed into law on June 3rd, just in time for the nation to avoid default on June 5th. The Fiscal Responsibility Act, Public Law 118-5, suspends the debt limit through January 1, 2025 and imposes federal spending caps for the next two years. In fiscal year 2024, spending for non-defense agencies will essentially remain flat, except for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Increases in funding will be capped at 1% for defense and non-defense agencies in fiscal year 2025. The deal also includes a stipulation to help avoid government shutdowns in 2024 and 2025. If, by January 1, 2024, Congress has not approved all 12 appropriations bills, a continuing resolution will be enacted that cuts spending for both defense and non-defense agencies by 1% until all 12 appropriations bills are approved. This provision will be in effect next year and in 2025. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that the law would reduce the deficit by $1.5 trillion over a decade. The law rescinds $28 billion of unspent COVID-19 relief funds. It also rescinds $1.4 billion of the $80 billion in funding for the IRS that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act. Additionally, it redirects $20 billion of this funding to other non-defense spending. It expands work requirements for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, by 2025 for those ages 18 to 49 and ages 18 to 54, and it cancels extensions for student loan payment suspensions 60 days after June 30th. It also includes permitting changes that would streamline environmental review processes on projects such as new roads. The House vote on May 31 came after weeks of bipartisan negotiations between congressional leaders and the administration and a procedural vote from the House Rules Committee. The bill advanced out of the committee with a 7-6 vote with all four Democrats and two Republicans voting against the bill. Although it was a bipartisan bill, lawmakers from both sides of the aisle raised concerns 71 House Republicans voted against the bill, 26 of whom are members of the conservative Freedom Caucus. Representatives Jim Jordan, Republican Ohio, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican Georgia, and Mike Johnson, Republican Louisiana, were among eight of the Freedom Caucus members who ultimately supported the bill. The Republican No voters cited concerns that the bill did not do enough to cut government spending. Even with 71 opposition votes, a large majority of Republican members, 149, voted to pass the bill. On the Democratic side, 46 House members voted against the bill, 40 of whom are Congressional Progressive Caucus members. Many of the House Democrats who voted no cited concerns about new work requirements for SNAP, the rescinding of IRS funding, permitting provisions, and the non-defense spending caps for federal programs. Ultimately, the bill passed the House with a bipartisan vote, with more Democratic members, 165, voting in favor of the bill than Republicans, 149, even though the latter are in the majority. Following House passage the next day on June 1st, the Senate passed the measure in a 63-36 to 36 vote. During Senate consideration, 11 amendments were introduced, all of which failed before the final vote. 44 Democratic senators voted in favor of the bill, while four Democratic senators, John Fetterman, Democrat, Pennsylvania, Ed Markey, Democrat, Massachusetts, Jeff Merkley, Democrat, Oregon, and Elizabeth Warren, Democrat, Massachusetts, voted against it. A majority of Republican senators, 31, voted against the bill while 17 GOP senators, including Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Minority Whip John Thune, Republican South Dakota, voted for its passage. It takes all of us. Letter Carrier Political Fund. LCPF is a nonpartisan political action committee established for the purpose of electing qualified candidates who support letter carriers and a strong and innovative U.S. Postal Service. Since union dues can't be used to support candidates for political office, NALC relies 100% on member contributions to the LCPF, which in turn helps us support those on Capitol Hill who defend us. Join the LCPF at NALC.org PAC. By making a contribution to the letter carrier political fund, you are doing so voluntarily and with the understanding that your contribution is not a condition of membership in the National Association of Letter Carriers or of employment by the Postal Service, nor is it part of union dues. You have a right to refuse to contribute without any reprisal. Any guideline amounts are merely suggestions and you may contribute more or less than the guidelines suggest and the union will not favor or disadvantage you by reason of the amount of your contribution or your decision not to contribute. The Letter Carrier Political Fund will use the money it receives to contribute to candidates for federal office and undertake other political spending as permitted by law. Your selection shall remain in full force and effect until cancelled. Contributions to the Letter Carrier Political Fund are not deductible for federal income tax purposes. Federal law prohibits the Letter Carrier Political Fund from soliciting contributions from individuals who are not NALC members, executive and administrative staff, or their families. Any contribution received from such an individual will be refunded to that contributor. Federal law requires us to use our best efforts to collect and report the name, mailing address, name of employer, and occupation of individuals whose contributions exceed $200 in a calendar year. Know the warning signs for sun and heat. Most letter carriers enjoy working outdoors instead of being cooped up in an office. But working outside in the summer brings potential hazards, and carriers need to protect themselves from the dangers associated with heat and sun. Letter carriers need to understand the risks of sun exposure and hot weather, take proactive measures to avoid them, and know the signs of trouble, NALC Director of Safety and Health Manuel L. Peralta Jr. said. Working alone means you have to take responsibility for your own safety and make it your first priority. Being physically fit or tough-minded isn't enough. Letter carriers need to take care of their body's needs and prepare in advance. All carriers must be wary of extreme heat, especially those who have not acclimatized to the conditions, whether because they have been on leave or are a new hire. Knowing how to prevent heat stress is key to keeping a letter carrier safe on a hot day. Water is the first line of defense. Hydration is essential to the body's natural cooling process. Drinking plenty of H2O long before you leave the office is the first step in heat safety. Continue to drink about 8 ounces every 15 minutes while in the heat, and even afterward to replace vital bodily fluids. Check with your doctor on the best way to replenish your electrolytes. The other essential part of preparing to survive the heat is dressing for the weather. Wear loose-fitting, breathable clothing to allow your skin to cool itself. Choose light-colored fabric because it reflects the sunlight better and keeps you cooler. Even if your body is cool, you need a hat too. Studies have shown that sun exposure can cause brain dysfunction just by heating your head. On your route, make a plan for places to take refuge if you overheat. Look for shady areas and air-conditioned public spaces that you can use to cool down, especially at midday. Even if you take all of these precautions, heat stress can catch up with you, so know the signs you should be prepared to recognize the two kinds of severe heat stress. Heat exhaustion symptoms include headache, nausea, dizziness, weakness, thirst, and heavy sweating. You should call for medical help before this becomes a heat stroke. Heat stroke is the most serious heat-related illness and requires immediate medical attention. Call 911 immediately if possible, and if possible, have someone contact your supervisor. Do not wait for your supervisor's approval to call 911. Symptoms include confusion, fainting, seizures, very high body temperature, hot, dry skin, and profuse sweating. The visible signs of heat stroke are red, hot, dry skin, or excessive sweating, seizures, and fainting. Take action immediately when you recognize the signs of heat exhaustion or heat stroke, whether in yourself or in a colleague. Find shade or a cool place indoors, drink water, and call 911 immediately. Then notify your supervisor if you can. To help outdoor workers, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, and the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, NIOSH, have jointly developed a heat safety tool app for your smartphone. Once the app is installed, it can detect your location and provide you with the current temperature, humidity, and heat index. The combination of temperature and humidity that tells you how difficult it will be for your body to cool itself. The app will provide the expected heat index for the day so you can plan for it. Heat isn't the only threat the sun brings. Even when the air isn't hot, sunlight can severely damage your skin. Sunburn can cause extreme discomfort, but even if you don't burn, long-term sun exposure brings the risk of skin cancer. Even on cool or cloudy days, letter carriers should take precautions daily to minimize the risk of both sunburn and long-term skin damage from cumulative exposure to the sun's rays. Skin damage due to long-term exposure can be a serious problem later in life, Peralta said. Protect yourself every day so it doesn't add up. Use a strong sunscreen, even on cloudy days, on all exposed skin, and reapply as needed. Consider the sun protection factor, SPF, of the sunscreen you use. SPF is a multiplier of how long the sunscreen allows you to go in the sun without burning. For example, on a sunny day when you might suffer a sunburn in 15 minutes with no protection, a sunscreen-rated SPF 30 would protect you for 7 hours, as long as sweat doesn't wash it away sooner. Because it wears off, even without sweat, in 2 hours or so, carry sunscreen with you and reapply as needed. When you can, wear appropriate clothes to cover as much of your skin as possible. Remember that the sun's rays can go through some types of fabric, so consider wearing uniform items made for sun protection and applying sunscreen under a shirt or hat just to be safe. Stay safe from heat and sun this summer, Peralta said, and look out for each other. Apply for the 2024 NALC Leadership Academy. NALC is now accepting applications for the 2024 Leadership Academy, which is open to all active NALC members. Leadership Academy consists of three week-long sessions held over a five-month period at the Maritime Institute near Baltimore, Maryland. During the classes, students discuss effective leadership skills and the union's legislative agenda. They learn about topics such as the dispute resolution process, strategic planning, branch financial responsibilities, retirement issues, route protection, workers' compensation, effective negotiation techniques, and communicating through traditional social media. Students are required to complete outside learning projects after returning home following weeks one and two. Upon graduation, each student will spend a fourth week working in their National Business Agent's office. The Academy curriculum is designed to both develop and enhance the knowledge and skills that are essential for NALC leaders. In addition to the Leadership Academy staff, each of the resident National Officers, as well as many Headquarters staff members, help teach the Academy, providing students with NALC's top experts in each field. Currently, 5 resident officers, 12 national business agents, 23 regional administrative assistants, and 34 headquarters and regional staff members, along with hundreds of state and branch representatives, are graduates of the NALC Leadership Academy. Applications are available on NALC.org or by scanning the QR code above on page 7 and will be accepted through Friday, September 15th.
2: On page 8 is the zip code turns 00060 on july 1st 1963 the post office introduced the zip code to the nation the system has become such an accepted part of addressing an envelope or package that it's hard to imagine a time when it wasn't in use those five little digits may not seem like a big deal but they mark a major turning point for the post office while the post office had kept up with changes in transportation technology from horses to trucks and trains to planes mail sortation had always been done by hand After a customer dropped a letter off at the post office or a mailbox, a human being would have to look at the address and move it along toward that destination's post office, where a letter carrier would sort it into delivery order and then deliver it along their route. But the zone improvement plan, zip code, would be the key to the shift from this sorting being done by human eyes and hands to machines directing the majority of the nation's mail after it arrived at a post office and until it reached the letter carrier for delivery. As the nation grew and the volume of mail continued to multiply, especially after World War II, the post office saw that the ways it had handled the mail since the founding of the nation could not keep up. By 1963, a letter went through about 17 sorting stops before reaching its intended address, with many coast-to-coast pieces taking a lengthy criss-cross route through those sorting stops across the country. As automation transformed other industries, Postmasters General saw this opportunity to use automation to reduce the number of employees and resources needed to sort and move the mail. In the late 1950s, the post office introduced sorting machines, but they still relied on human decision-making. The machines would put a piece of mail in front of a human operator who would read the address and, through some keystrokes, code that mail to its destination. For automation to have a significant impact, though, the next step was to take the operator out of the equation. These efforts led to the establishment of the Nationwide Improved Mail Service, NIMS, program in 1961. The goal of NIMS was to get the mail ready to be sorted by machines. One part of that was standardizing the sizes and shapes of envelopes. Another involved the creation of some type of machine-readable code. The post office saw the zip code as an essential step toward the use of scanners, as explained in its 1963 annual report. Widespread use of the zip code is expected to pave the way for a smooth transition to mail sorting by mechanized optical scanning equipment, which is now under development. As part of this development, private companies under contract with the post office developed optical character recognition, OCR software, that could read handwritten and typed addresses. Descendants of this OCR software are still used to convert all kinds of images to readable text today. A multi-digit code had been in the works for almost two decades before the zip code was unveiled in 1963, and it was created through the combination of two separate codes. The first was a three-digit code proposed in 1945 by Philadelphia Postal Inspector Robert Moon who suggested codes for processing hubs throughout the country to make it more efficient for mail to travel from hub to hub. Moon persistently proposed the system to every Postmaster General, getting nowhere until newly appointed Postmaster General Edward Day took up the idea in 1961. Day noted that between 1943 and 1962, annual mail volume had doubled, growing from 33 billion pieces of mail to 66.5 billion, and so the processing system needed to be modernized to efficiently handle the rising mail volume. He proposed adding an additional two digits that were already in use in some big cities. Here's how the post office described the five-digit code in its 1963 annual report. The five-digit ZIP number is a structured code in which the first digit identifies one of ten large areas of the nation, and the second digit identifies a state, a geographic portion of a heavily populated state, or two or more less populated states. The third digit identifies a major destination area within a state, which may be a large city post office or a major mail concentration point, sectional center, in a less populated area. 553 of these sectional centers have been designated across the country. The final two digits indicate either a postal delivery unit of a larger city post office or an individual post office served from a sectional center. There was a problem with adding five digits onto an address though. At that time, most mail addressing equipment used by business mailers could fit only 23 characters in the bottom line of an address. To make room for the zip code, state names needed to be abbreviated In June 1963, the post office came up with an initial set of abbreviations, but many had three or four letters, which was still too long. So four months later, the post office created the two-letter abbreviations we know today, except for one. In 1969, at the request of the Canadian Postal Administration, the abbreviation for Nebraska, originally NB, was changed to NE to avoid confusion with New Brunswick. With the new system created, a bigger problem faced PMG Day, getting the American public to use the zip code. Day turned to the American telephone and telegraph company, AT&T, for advice, as AT&T held a monopoly on phone service in the country and had recently tried to get Americans to start using area codes for long-distance service. Executives at the telephone company told Day that the public had been hesitant about learning the three-digit codes and, further, that it was a struggle to get people to use them. That posed a problem, as the post office couldn't make use of the new sorting machines and take advantage of the cost savings until acceptance rates for the zip code were nearly universal. Day looked to West Germany for a possible solution. That country's postal service had created a coding system a few years earlier and had seen an 80% adoption rate within one year. The solution had been a public campaign to educate and excite the public. Enter Mr. Zip, a cartoon character who happily and speedily delivered the mail. Mr. Zip! actually predated the zip code, having been created in the 1950s to advertise a bank-by-mail campaign for Chase Manhattan Bank. The design was eventually acquired by AT&T, which to the post office department at no cost. The post office elongated his body, gave him a letter to hold, and eventually changed his name from Mr. P.O. Zone to Mr. Zip, when the name zip code was settled upon. Mr. Zip was designed to indicate to customers that the zip code would increase the accuracy and speed of delivery while limiting future rate increases. Taking no chances, the post office adopted a saturation campaign for several years. Cut out Mr. Zips, including some that featured audio recordings, appeared in many post offices. In addition, Mr. Zip appeared on posters, on mail trucks, on buttons worn by postal employees and in carrier satchels. The post office partnered with AT&T to put Mr. Zip in AT&T offices, on that company's trucks, and in local Yellow Pages. The post office department got even more creative over time. Miss Zips were crowned at some local post office banquets and dances. Lesson plans were designed for teachers. At Christmas time, children were informed that Santa now had a zip code 99701. A post office booklet explained why children were such an important audience. The child who is taught to appreciate the value of zip code can be a tremendous asset in reminding both parents and playmates to use zip code. Zip codes were everywhere. The Five Americans released the 1967 song, Zip Code, which reached number 36 on Billboard Magazine's Hot 100 Singles Chart. Elsewhere on the radio, Ethel Merman sang a jingle to the tune of Zippity-Doodah for a public service announcement. Welcome to Zip Code. Learn it today. Send your mail out the five-digit way. For a time saver, to lighten the load, your return address should have the zip code. Ads were placed on television, too, with a 15-minute one that featured the folk group The Swinging Six singing the benefits of the zip code. What is the zip code? A postal quirk? What does it do? How does it work? If you'll lend an ear, we'll be glad to explain how the zip code eases your postal pain. While Mr. Zip never appeared on a postage stamp, he often appeared in the margin, the selvage of stamps until he was retired in the 1980s. Despite the campaign, the public was initially skeptical. In a July 30, 1963 column, humorist Art Buchwald of the New York Herald Tribune complained of now having to remember his own zip code and having to know the codes for everyone he wished to send mail to. In response to such complaints, the post office sent Zip-A-List kits to nearly every mailbox in the United States. These kits consisted of postcards on which people could write an address for which they needed a zip code. They would then send the postcard to the post office, which would then send them the zip code. While many liked the list, one woman sent it back with messages on each card including, the Pony Express would be more efficient. Others expressed fear that the zip code was a conspiracy to depersonalize or dehumanize them and possibly even part of a communist plot to undermine American society. Some letter carriers voiced their own concerns about the way zip code campaign was conducted. Melford, Oregon branch, 1433 scribe Steve Dodge wrote in the postal record in September 1963, I believe our postal department has goofed, and this may well bury Mr. Zip amid jeers and laughter from those who do not understand the reason for this. The public should be better informed. They should know the reasons for Mr. Zip and the expected results. Lois Ardoño, a member of the NELC National Ladies Auxiliary from Fort Worth, Texas, declared in the August 1967 postal record, I am tired of the image of the American letter carrier being held up to public ridicule. No letter carrier that I've ever seen looks as absurd as Mr. Zip. The campaign initially struggled with only 50% of one survey's respondents using the zip code by 1966. But a renewed push, along with assistance from the National Ad Council, helped the zip code's use rise to 83% by 1969. Large mailers were initially skeptical of the change as well. The post office forced large mailers to spend more than $200 million to comply with the new NIMS-based requirements. The large mailers turned to Congress to push back the conversion deadline from 1967 to some later date, but the post office refused to budge and Congress did not intervene. Holding firm worked as by 1970, 84% of large business mailers agreed that the zip code was a good idea, probably because the public had embraced the new code so quickly. The zip code has expanded in size over the years, growing to nine digits in 1983, but the zip plus four has never been adopted universally by the public and has mainly been used by large-scale mailers. Beyond postal usage, the zip code long has been a useful tool for other businesses, national and local government entities, and academic study. In its 1967 annual report, the Post Office reported some ways in which the zip code was being used beyond the mail. The California Council of Growers bases much of its planning tips to farmers on their zip codes. An Ohio gas firm uses the codes to determine concentrations of stockholder groups. The routes of meter readers in Cedar Rapids, Iowa are divided by zip code areas, as are those of salesmen in many sections of the nation. Several insurance companies assign accident report and claims investigators by the codes. The Kentucky Health Department requires the zips of patients to trace the source, concentration, and spread of communicable diseases. Some military reserve units detail new personnel to training centers near their homes by zip. In the decades since, the zip code has been called one of the first digitization of surface space, converting names to numbers. The US Census Bureau quickly adopted the zip code to help it conduct its every 10 year census. Communities embrace it as part of their identity. In the 1990s, the TV show Beverly Hills 90210 made one zip code a Hollywood star. Well, it's easy to look back, Some 60 years later, and smile at the campaign and some of the silly things the post office did to try to get people to use the zip code, it's important to recognize that this was just the public facing aspect of a major turning point in the evolution of the nation's postal service. Six decades ago marks the time when the post office began to transform itself from a human driven sortation system to one handled mostly by machines. Nowadays, it's impossible to imagine how the mail, some 127.3 billion pieces last year, could be handled without automation. But then again, it's impossible to imagine the mail without the zip code.
0: Proud to Serve Proud to Serve is a semi-regular compilation of heroic stories about letter carriers in their communities. If you know about a hero in your branch, contact us as soon as possible at 202-662-2489 or at postalrecord@nalc.org. at nalc.org. We'll follow up with you to obtain news clippings, photos, or other information. Honoring Heroic Carriers Heroism, like the mail, comes in many packages. Think of police officers or firefighters. But for some citizens in need of assistance, their heroes come in the form of concerned letter carriers. Letter carriers are members of nearly every community in this nation and know when something is wrong. Spotting fires and injuries, they are often the first to respond. The following stories document their heroism. For them, delivering for America is all in a day's work. I deliver bills and save lives. Delivering packages on New Year's Eve, Buffalo Western New York Branch 3 member Tim Martin turned a corner and saw a car on fire in front of a mobile home. Some neighbors were trying to put out the fire by throwing snow on it, but Martin noticed that the technique was not working. Other neighbors were filming the fire with their phones. But then he realized that the fire was spreading to the mobile home. Knowing that an elderly resident with breathing problems lived there, Martin asked the neighbors if she was home. They said yes, but kept filming. The fire was blocking the front door, so Martin rushed to the back of the trailer. He pushed the back door open, but it was held shut with a bungee cord. Luckily, I'm skinny enough to squeeze through, he said. He found the home filling with smoke and the woman looking frantically for his shoes. Let's get you outside, he told her, as he helped her leave the house with her purse and dog. First responders had arrived, and Martin helped the woman find an EMT who could give her oxygen. To avoid blocking the fire vehicles that were coming to the scene, he left in his truck, continuing his route. Martin returned a few days later and learned the woman was all right and had been able to move back into the home. In recognition of his heroic actions, his supervisor coined a slogan for Martin, I deliver bills and save lives, and even made him a superhero cape. It was all in fun, but Martin said he doesn't feel like a hero. I just think I'm a regular guy, he said. I was just happy that I could help. Carrier jumps to aid of unconscious coworker. As he was casing the mail with his colleagues at the post office one morning in January, Manny Sanchez heard a commotion. I heard someone screaming that Dominique passed out, Sanchez said. The four year carrier and member of New Jersey Merch Branch 38 rushed to help his stricken coworker, five year carrier Dominique Pacpa. I didn't feel well, Pacpa, a fellow Branch 38 member, recalled. I passed out. I heard the voice of Manny. When I woke up, I was in the hospital. When Pacpa collapsed, Sanchez knew exactly what to do. He had served as a combat medic in the Army, including two combat tours. Sanchez quickly asked other employees to stand back and asked one of them to open a window to provide fresh air. When a supervisor tried to remove Pacpa's jacket, Sanchez warned him not to before he could check Pacpa for injuries from the fall. After finding that he had no apparent injuries, Sanchez removed some of Pacpa's clothes to prepare him for CPR or use of an automated external defibrillator, AED, a device located in many post offices that can detect heart problems and administer life-saving treatment in an emergency. He checked Pakpa's breathing and heart rate. Before Sanchez could start CPR or use an AED though, first responders arrived, so Sanchez relayed the vital signs to the EMTs and let them take over caring for Pakpa. After a few days in the hospital and a few weeks of recovery, Pakpa returned to work. Manny is ready to save the life of anybody, no matter who you are, Pocpa said. We're glad to have him back for sure, Sanchez said. Sanchez said he shies from being called a hero. I'm not a hero for doing the right thing, he said. Suicide note leads to call for offer of help. Dennis Bracco didn't have any mail for one of his customers on his route on his route in Buffalo, New York, on a day in January. But he spotted a note on the mailbox and walked over to read it. Note to postman. Call 911. My body is in the bedroom, the note began, followed by a plea to care for the man's cats. Brocco, an eight-year member of Buffalo Western New York Branch 3, recognized it immediately as a suicide note. He went to the customer's door, which was unlocked, and opened it, calling for the customer. Then I second-guessed opening the door, he said, because he didn't know what would happen or what he would find. Instead, he called 911 and his supervisor and waited for the police to arrive. It all happened so fast, Brocco said. It took me by surprise. He later learned that the man had not carried out his plan to take his own life, and that by calling to the man through the door, Bracco might have caused him to stop his suicide attempt. Bracco saw the customer a few months later in front of his house. The man apologized for leaving the note, but Bracco, who once had a family member attempt suicide, told the man to come to him if he needed help. If there's any time you want to talk, he told the man, I'm here. Bracco is grateful that he took the time to check the note despite having no mail to deliver to the man that day. I'm glad my instincts told me to check the box, he said. Help is on the way. David Rumore has carried mail for 22 years, long enough to know his customers well. On his route on a cold, windy day in December 2022, Rumore was in his truck when he heard a voice crying for help. It was really windy that day, Rumor recalled. It was fortunate that I heard him. Rumore, a member of Kansas City, Missouri, Branch 30, rushed to the source of the pleas, a house on his route where an elderly man lived. Rumor found the man lying in his garage, injured and unable to stand. Rumor called 911 and stayed with the man until first responders arrived. Though he later learned the man had died from his injuries, Rumor said the man's family was thankful for his actions. Mr. Rumor needs to be recognized for saving my uncle from what could have been hours of misery, the man's nephew wrote to Branch 30 President Melvin Moore. City Carrier Assistant Ryan Costa had only a few months under his belt in January when he approached a house with a mail slot on his route in Worcester, Massachusetts. The Branch 12 member placed the mail in the slot and heard a man's voice call out for help from inside. Costa called back. The man said he thought he was having a stroke. Costa ran back to his truck to get his phone and called 911. Still on the line with the dispatcher, he went back to the house and found a side door that was unlocked. I found him in the living room on the floor, Costa said. He was shaking and sweating profusely. The man asked Costa for some water. Costa stayed until paramedics arrived, called his supervisor, and then returned to his route. He later learned that the man had been lying there for at least eight hours. It was a Saturday, and the stricken man was staying at his sister's house. The sister was out of town and wasn't due back until Monday. His sister was extremely thankful that he had been there to help, Costa said. The man was taken to a hospital and later recovered. Costa said he is not the hero in the situation. I feel like I did what anybody should do in that situation, he said. I just called the paramedics. They saved him. Delivering the mail in Kenosha, Wisconsin in February, 22-year carrier Steve Cairo spotted an elderly woman sitting in her driveway. I stopped the truck and saw that she was bleeding from her head," the Branch 574 member said. She told him she had fallen. Cairo went to his truck and called 911. The dispatcher asked him to stop the bleeding while he waited with her for paramedics to arrive. He found some paper towels in her garage and used them to help staunch the blood flow. After emergency responders arrived and took her to the hospital, Cairo returned to his route. The woman's thankful husband later said it was lucky that Cairo had seen her, because the neighbors living on either side of her house were snowbirds who were living elsewhere for the winter. So, without Cairo, she might have been outside much longer. I was just glad I could help her, Cairo said. Letter carriers and the mail on social media Various news stories and interesting anecdotes that celebrate letter carriers and the mail have been appearing on social media. The following are some that have come to the union's attention. If you come across a story that you'd like us to consider featuring, send it to social@nalc.org. Maryland mailman sews his way into customers' hearts. Apparently, Baltimore, Maryland carrier Thaddeus Winky has picked up a side gig as a seamster for two little dogs. On May 21st, resident Shane Brock posted a video on TikTok explaining that she and her girlfriend often sit outside on the stoop with their dogs, and the branch 176 member usually stops to chat when he drops off their mail. Brock told Newsweek, one day he asked our dogs' names and then had mentioned that he loves to sew and even has a little shop or working area in his basement. He said he'd love to make something for our dogs sometime. And we were like, yeah, we'd love that. Soon after, the carrier gave a couple a gift. Two small bandanas with red and blue tartan print and embroidered with the dog's names. The video received an outpouring of love from the community with more than 142,000 views and hundreds of users praising Winky's kindness. This, just small things like this are what the world needs. Small acts of kindness, more love. Let's make it happen, please, one user commented. Brock posted another video soon after showing off more gifts from the letter carrier. Two more bandanas, with Super Mario print and embroidery of the dog's names, as well as a t-shirt embroidered with the words Super Dog Mom. He's out here making people's day, read the caption. Brock mentioned that when she told Winky he should set up an Etsy store to sell his work, the carrier explained that he already has one, and she was awaiting the shop's information to share with her followers. It honestly made our day two days in a row. It's just the type of pure kindness that really melts your heart, Brock said of the surprises. Postcard collector discovers a desirable COVID-19 keepsake. Clarissa Ferris has been a collector since she was 13. Her fascination began when she stumbled upon thousands of postcards collected by her late grandfather in Italy. Since then, Clarissa has collected many types of postcards. She collects Girl Scout postcards because she is a former Girl Scout. She collects cards with images from Switzerland, where she used to live. And she collects cards depicting concrete because as a physicist, she used to research concrete at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. However, her focus for the past three years has been on COVID-19-related postcards. She finds various depictions of pandemic life fascinating. Some of her postcards show healthcare workers at war with the virus. Some show it emptied streets and cities. Some show contraptions intended for social distancing, such as a six-foot-long hat. Ferris's fascination began with a single pandemic-related postcard, an item she obtained because of her generalized interest in current events. However, she quickly zeroed in on the topic, thinking there had to be more. Perusing sites like Etsy and Zazzle, she found thousands. Eventually, leading her to create an online database with fellow collector Mark Routh. The database can be viewed at sites.google.com/view/covid-postcards-database. As this magazine went to press, it collects more than 1,900 postcards from more than 60 countries. Ferris does more than collect. She loves to share her joy. During National Postcard Week in May, she commissioned a postcard from Maryland artist Adam Napton that depicts a cat sleeping on a pile of postcards somewhere in Italy. She mailed out 70 of them. Postcards have always been a witness of what happened, Ferris told the Washington Post, so it was logical that there would be COVID postcards. New Jersey Carrier retires after 35 years. In February, New Jersey merged Branch 38 member Sue Perez retired after 35 years with the Postal Service. You have to love your job to commit to doing it for 35 years, Perez told the Sparta Independent. You can't just go to a job every single day if you hate it. You have to love your job, love what you're doing, and love your coworkers. They become your family. Perez said that her favorite part of her work was interacting with customers and watching children grow up and families expand. I've watched children grow up and actually see them go from birth until high school, go back to college, come home. Some of them actually buy the house, she reminisced. Her husband, Fred, explained, Sue has always been a very social person, talking with almost anyone that crosses her path. The carrier started at age 20, delivering mail in Essex County. She quickly gained the responsibilities of a safety captain, and after 12 years as both a carrier and safety captain, She was chosen to teach new hires as a safety and driver training instructor in Jersey City. I felt especially great when I was doing the Instructor Academy because you actually see the new people coming in. We start off young in the post office, and many aspire to be more. Some of them are now actually management. I love that. Perez was looking forward to the extra free time, but isn't quite sure how she'll adjust. It has been 35 years, and that's half my life. It's everything I've been doing, so I'm just figuring it out. Illinois Carrier Warrants Against Beautifying Mail Lots of customers enjoy decorating their mail, but Oak Forest, Illinois carrier Chad Huber posted a viral TikTok video explaining that it can sometimes backfire. He said that one of the current trends is to put the return address sticker on the back of the envelope in an effort to seal the envelope, but that this confuses the computer and gives the customer a 50-50 shot at getting this letter back. To avoid this, letter carriers have to, quote, Take a sharpie and cross out all the barcodes here and it's not going to look cute anymore basically. So just put it in the upper left corner. The video has been viewed more than 855,000 times with commenters overwhelmingly agreeing with the South Suburban merged Illinois branch 4016 member. One commenter added that pink or red pens are more difficult for the computer to read and should therefore be avoided when addressing mail. Another said that wax sealing envelopes can ruin the scanner. The USPS official website echoes Uber, advising to print or type your address in the upper left corner on the front of the envelope. It also emphasizes the accuracy and legibility of addresses in order to speed up delivery. Gorgeous post offices recognized. In May, Architectural Digest published an article of the most beautiful post offices spanning the world. Topping the list was the Algiers Central Post Office, constructed in 1910 with Moorish Architecture. In 2015, it was converted into a museum about the history of the postal service in Algeria. The list also includes the Saigon Central Post Office in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, a popular tourist attraction for its vibrant yellow and green paint job. The Palacio de Correros de Mexico, located in Mexico City, which, quote, appears more like a royal palace than a post office, with its eclectic style and intricate gilding and molding, And the main post office in Bonn, Germany, a bright yellow post building historically used as a city palace and currently home to the statue of former Bonn resident Ludwig van Beethoven. Digest also praised a few offices right here in the United States. The list noted an Art Deco-style post office in Los Angeles, California, along Sunset and Hollywood boulevards, which also graces the National Register of Historic Places an adobe-inspired post office in Winslow, Arizona, designed by Louis A. Simon, who also worked on the IRS building and the Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum, and the vast James A. Farley post office in New York City with the inscription, neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. This quote is from Herodotus' histories and has become an unofficial motto of the Postal Service. Going the distance. For Roberto Santini Sierra, riding dirt bikes is a family affair that began when he was about nine years old. I got involved because my dad used to do it, so I kind of got raised into that, he said. It's a family thing. Along with his brother and father, Santini Sierra participates in endurance dirt bike riding events all over the 72 municipalities of Puerto Rico through all of the island's weather conditions and tough terrain. An endurance dirt bike race is a lengthy, around 75 to 100 mile course, off-road and motorbike race held over several hours. A myriad of factors draw the carrier into the sport, including being somewhat of an adrenaline junkie. I do like the speed, he says. When riding, you generally travel between 10 and 30 miles per hour, but it can top out at 80 miles per hour. But one of the biggest perks for him is the atmosphere. I really like just being out in the woods, he said. All these places I ride, there's no cell phone signal. Nobody bothers you. It's entertaining and peaceful at the same time. I get drawn to it. At least once a month, the 10-year carrier gets out on the trails to do a day-long ride to train for endurance events. Planning around his busy postal schedule usually means he does an 80 to 100 mile ride over the course of six to seven hours on a Sunday, although that sometimes means sore muscles the next day. Sometimes it's brutal, he says, and added with a laugh. The next day you're walking and you're like, oh my God, everything hurts. The Ponce Branch 826 member, who is a steward for the Calle Post Office, competes in events several times a year. They are usually on Sundays and move around from town to town. Santini Sierra's family will sign up too, which means that he frequently competes against his brother, who is also a city carrier, in addition to his friends. Sometimes we go alone, he says, though most of the time we try to ride together. His dad signs up too, but is usually in a different category based on age. The day of an event, the competitors will show up, check in, and get their assigned number. There will be certain checkpoints through the whole route, and they'll see that number on your helmet, and they'll write it down and the time you were there, he said. They'll make sure you stay on the route and that you don't skip or take shortcuts. The person who wins usually completes the course in under five hours. There also will be tiny breaks at some checkpoints. Before the race begins, participants put their own gasoline container in an official event truck, and a race official drives it to the checkpoint. Once riders arrive, you fill up your gas, they'll usually have a water cooler with a bunch of drinks, a few fruits, and then you just put everything in your system and keep going. As a strategy, some people choose not to stop for gasoline, but Santini Sierra usually does once. If I fill it up one time halfway through the race, I'll be good to go to the finish, she said. For a single day event, most people finish between the fifth and sixth hour, but riders can encounter difficulties from time to time. I've gotten out of the woods at like 9 p.m., Santini Sierra says, due to his own breakdown or if somebody with him has a breakdown or injury. Riders wear protective gear, including a helmet, riding pants, a jersey, usually a dry-fit, long-sleeved shirt, a chest protector on top made of solid plastic and foam, knee guards, riding boots, goggles, and gloves. It can get extremely hot under all of those layers. And though those items provide protection, they don't guarantee no injuries. One of Santini Sierra's best friends once broke his leg during an event. There was a tree branch that somebody had cut up, he explained, that protruded out of the woods onto the main road a little bit. He was passing by fast, and it caught his shin. Even with boots and knee guards he had on, it broke his shin bone in half. He had to be rushed to the hospital. The carrier is lucky not to have suffered any major injuries. I've had regular bruises and cuts, nothing like broken body parts or anything, thank God, he said, although he has gotten stung by bees. There are lots of fruit trees here and bees hang all over them, so every now and then you'll hit a branch with your helmet and they'll come after you. Bees aren't the only wildlife riders can run into in the woods. In Puerto Rico, there are wild horses and bulls in the mountains, so every now and then you might just hit a trail and there's a bull right in front of you, the carrier said. And if you happen to be behind someone with a red bike, which is believed to anger bulls, encountering a bull might be really bad news. The animals are known to be dangerous and unpredictable. It happened once or twice. Trust me, it's not fun. You can be on the bike and still feel him throttling, he said, of a bull he came across. The carrier's close encounters have been within 10 feet, but he has heard from other riders that they have had to climb trees to escape. Over the course of a race, there are various types of terrain and obstacles. Hills, turns, cliffs, rocks in the way, potholes. Sometimes it's sandy, sometimes it's muddy, Santini Sierra said, adding that dry dirt is optimal to ride on and easy to clean. Otherwise, it takes some special cleaning to get the bike back in good shape following the race. When it's really muddy, especially when it's rainy season here and it's raining constantly, I'll have dirt in my ears everywhere. Competitions, however, are rain or shine. Only a hurricane will stop it, the carrier says. Speaking of which, after Hurricane Fiona swept through Puerto Rico in September 2022, Santini Sierra, an Air Force veteran, helped his branch coordinate the efforts in the aftermath of the storm. See the November 2022 postal record before turning his attention to helping get his sport back on track. Trails were beaten up, he said. Paths completely changed. Rivers were a whole new scenario when we got there. Water just swept everything different. Santini Sierra said that a collective effort soon took place. There are a lot of avid riders around the island, so everybody connected through WhatsApp chats and Facebook, he said. We pretty much had to go out there with a saw to cut trees up. We had to open trails or deviate trails because of mudslides. It was tough. Before long, the landscape was back to functioning like normal. One or two events were scheduled each month except for July and December, when there are none due to high vacation periods, and Santini Sierra tries to participate in all of them. The best he's placed in competition is eighth. Though he doesn't usually notice how many people are in each category, there are usually 100 participants altogether each race. Around twice a year, Santini Sierra will participate in multi-day endurance events, which begin on Friday and last through Sunday. They typically start at the most western or northern point of the island. The first day, the carrier explains, you ride from town A to town B, which might be 60 miles. Contestants sleep at a hotel at that day's ending point, where he usually meets family who take his gear. Then they wake up the next morning and go from town B to the next town, and so on until the final point at the end of the weekend. He says that his day job certainly helps with his endurance for events, although he's not the only letter carrier to ride. Most of the people that race with me say that my advantage is that I'm a mailman, the carrier said, because I do more cardio than any of them. I have a walking route that's 10 to 11 miles a day. They're like, no wonder you don't get tired. You're under the sun all day working. Why would you get tired riding? In the past, the carrier lived and carried mail in Virginia. He was able to find the occasional trail to ride for fun, but the competitions would go from state to state and they were too hard to participate in as a letter carrier. In Puerto Rico, he says, the longest drive he does for an event is only about two and a half hours. When interviewed in late May, the carrier was already planning his next endurance event to be held later that week, with many more scheduled for the rest of 2023. But Santini Sierra wants to keep it solely as a hobby. I'm not trying to be a professional or anything like that, he said. For Santini Sierra, he wants to keep the focus on connecting with family. I think I love it so much because I get to spend time with my dad and my brother more than anything, and some friends that I don't get to see often, he said. It means a lot to me. And he wants to keep that going forward, including with his three children, all who ride dirt bikes. My youngest daughter is six, and I just bought her one two weeks ago, he said, adding that all three kids enjoy the sport. Almost more than me, I think. Santini Sierra simply wants to ride with my kids the same way my dad had a chance to ride with me and my brother, he said. That's one of my long-term goals, to keep going at it and keep the family involved.
2: On page 19 is teamwork makes the food drive work. Letter carriers filled local pantry shelves during the Letter Carriers Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive held on Saturday, May 13th, continuing a proud tradition. The first annual Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive was held on May 15th, 1993, and has continued to be held every second Saturday in May, except for the two years at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. With inflation driving the cost of food higher, demands for supplies from food banks has increased. Meanwhile, emergency assistance from the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, formerly known as food stamps, which helped people through the pandemic, has expired. These developments made this year's food drive particularly critical. In the 30 years since it began, the food drive has collected approximately 1.9 billion pounds of food for those in need. The food goes to local pantries to restock shelves that face depletion. As of June 13, with about 60% of branches reporting, this year's nationwide total of collected food stood at £38,980,214. With an additional £500,000 of food donated by Kellogg Company and $212,808 in cash donations, the total so far rises to £42,033,910. Letter carriers and the volunteers who supported their efforts to collect millions of pounds of food from local communities throughout the country in just one day made the Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive a great success once again. And the need is great, with hunger affecting 1 in 8 Americans, including millions of children, senior citizens, and veterans. The Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive is held in 10,000 cities and towns across the United States, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, and Guam. It's the largest single-day food drive in the country. The annual Stamp Out Hunger food drive comes at a critical time for food pantries. Donations slow down after the winter holidays, while free or reduced-cost meals at schools that many children rely on are not available during the summer months. On May 13, letter carriers, with the help of postal employees and other crafts, managers, family, friends, and volunteers, collected bags of non-perishable food placed near their mailboxes by residents. Thanks to our national sponsors and the local sponsors who pitched in to pay for collection bags distributed to postal customers, letter Cares found plenty of food left by generous postal customers this year, Assistant to the President for Community Services Christina Vella-Davidson said. And as they do each year, letter Cares went above and beyond to bring millions of pounds of donations to food banks to help people in need in their communities. In addition, Many branches continued to use the online donor drive developed to replace the in-person food drive during the pandemic. The donations received go directly to local food banks, enhancing the food collection efforts. Grateful Food Banks and NELC branches reported their success and expressed their thanks in the news media as soon as the bags of donated groceries arrived. The generosity and coordination behind Stamp Out Hunger is simply astounding. Thank you to the letter carriers, volunteers, and all those who donated food for making this year's event such a success, Michael McKee, CEO of the Blue Ridge Area Food Bank, told ABC affiliate WSET-TV in Central Virginia. Stamp Out Hunger comes at a critical time for families and children who are at home during the summer months, and we are thankful to have a fresh supply of food donations to help keep our pantries stocked. Letter carriers in the area collected £115,019 for the food bank, McKee said, enough to provide 95,849 meals. We collected over £10,500 of donations, which we gave to our local Salvation Army and Rowan Helping Ministries food pantries. Kim Lane, Food Drive Coordinator for Salisbury, North Carolina Branch 934, wrote to the Salisbury Post, We would like to express our gratitude to our co-workers, rural letter carriers, clerks, maintenance, and management who delivered flyers, collected the donations, and helped to coordinate the food drive. 27,250 plus. The Fredericksburg Regional Food Bank says that's how many meals were collected on Saturday for Stamp Out Hunger, where mail carriers around the region picked up food left by the mailbox, reported Fredericksburg Today, a news website. In Fredericksburg, Virginia, home of Branch 685. The Austin letter carriers collected over 20,000 pounds of food during our 30th annual Stamp Out Hunger food drive, Bob Rosell wrote to the Austin Daily Herald in Austin, Minnesota. Rosell is food drive coordinator for Austin, Branch 717. The food collected and the monetary donations converted to pounds of food will help our local food shelf provide much-needed assistance to families and individuals throughout Mower County. Russell thanked local volunteers for their assistance, media outlets for publicity, and bag sponsors for collection bags. Worcester County Food Bank CEO, Jean McMurray, said her organization, which serves local food pantries throughout Worcester County, Massachusetts, received upward of 23,000 pounds of food this year, 11% more than last year's effort, which she said is equivalent to 19,000 meals. The food was collected by Worcester Branch 12 carriers. The food that is coming into food banks is not staying on site as long as it used to, McMurray told cable and online news outlet Spectrum News. It's going right back out into the community, and that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone because we know how much need there is in the community. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania Branch 500 carrier Ray Beltz said more than 4,500 pounds of dry and canned goods were collected in Pottsville for the local Salvation Army and the Holy Family Food Pantry in nearby Minersville. They were very grateful, Belts told the Pottsville Republican and Herald. At Holy Family, their food pantry was basically bare. The generosity of this community is just astounding, Karen Couch, director of the Salina Emergency Aid Food Bank in Kansas, said in the Salina Post. With more and more families using our pantry to supplement what they can afford at the grocery store, every donated box, bottle, and bag of food becomes more meaningful. Her food bank received twenty thousand seven hundred fifty pounds of food this year. Thanks to the carriers of Selena Branch 486. Carriers in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Branch 1128, collected food with the help of radio station wfnc show, Good Morning Fayetteville, with Goldie. Host Jeff Goldie Goldberg broadcast his show live from a food line grocery store with guests from the Postal Service and the Second Harvest Food Bank of Southeast North Carolina in the week leading up to the food drive. The publicity effort yielded 15,780,000 pounds of food. In a county where one out of every four children is food insecure and with the school year ending soon, it was more important than ever to make sure Second Harvest Food Bank was stocked up, Goldberg said. Thanks to all of our wonderful listeners for showing up and donating almost 16,000 pounds of food. Some food pantries spread the word on social media, celebrating the bounty of food collected on May 13th. Below is a sample of the messages shared. Thanks to your incredible support, the Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive was a huge success. 65,596 meals were raised to fight hunger in our communities. Let's keep spreading love and nourishment one meal at a time. Feeding, South Dakota. We couldn't believe our eyes when the at USPS delivered nearly 4,000 pounds of food from Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive to our Marlborough County cupboard on Saturday. Amazing. Thank you to everyone who participated in helping us feed neighbors in need. United Way of Tri-County, Framingham, Massachusetts. The results are in. This past Saturday, we collected 113,992 pounds of groceries through the Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive. Thank you to our mail carriers and our community for supporting our neighbors experiencing hunger. Sacramento Food Bank and Family Services, California. Stamp Out Hunger provided over 60,000 pounds and counting of food for our neighbors in need. We are grateful for letter carriers like Stephanie from the Brentwood Post Office and Erica from the Northridge Post Office who are so passionate about this nationwide food drive. Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina. You showed up to Stamp Out Hunger, and we thank you. The Stamp Out Hunger campaign with an national was a big success. Montgomery Area Food Bank, Alabama. Big thank you to the National Association of Letter Carriers and everyone who supported, volunteered, and donated to the Stamp Out Hunger food drive. Thanks to your generosity, we were able to collect over 74,000 pounds of food. Your efforts have made a significant impact in our community, and we are truly grateful for your support. Thank you again for your contributions and dedication to our mission. United Food Bank, Mesa, Arizona. This year's annual Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive was a huge success. Thanks to the generous support of our community, the National Association of Letter Carriers, U.S. Postal Service, and all of our dedicated staff members and volunteers, this year's food drive brought in over 187,000 pounds of food. We are so grateful for the outpouring of support for this year's food drive, which will have a lasting impact on the lives of those experiencing food insecurity in our community. San Diego Food Bank, California. Drum roll, please. Our NALC branch, 246 letter carriers from Milham Road, Westwood, Miller Road, and Parchment USPS facilities collected 75,294 pounds of food for this year's 31st annual Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive. Thank you to the dedicated letter carriers and post office employees who made this drive successful. We'd also like to thank our partners at the Salvation Army, Kalamazoo, Michigan, United Way of South Central Michigan, Advia Credit Union, Winsey Dedicated Services, many dedicated volunteers, and all who provided food donations. These donations directly support anti-hunger programs in Kalamazoo County, feeding many families in our community. Kalamazoo Loaves and Fishes, Michigan. Thanks to all your support during the 31st annual NLC National Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive, we received 11,451 pounds of food to provide 9,543 meals to our neighbors over the coming weeks. Every donation adds up, so no donation is too small. Palm Beach County Food Bank, Florida. Donations for the 2023 Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive have been delivered. Thanks to NLC National for another successful year of fighting hunger. Thank you Mercer County donors and letter carriers for stamping out hunger in our community. Community Food Warehouse of Mercer County, Sharon, Pennsylvania. We are so grateful to the community, the NLC National, and all of the USPS workers who helped with this year's Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive we collected more than 55,500 pounds of shelf stable nourishment for our neighbors here in the Miami Valley. The Food Bank Incorporated, Dayton, Ohio. Mahalo for participating in Letter Carrier Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive, May 13th. We received 375,000 pounds of food statewide and $17,000 in donations, enough to provide nourishment for over 350,000 meals for local families facing hunger. Hawaii Food Bank Honolulu. The NLC is committed to the fight to end hunger within our communities, and one way we work toward that is with our annual Letter Carrier Stamp Out Hunger food drive. NLC would like everyone to be mindful that while the food drive is held only one time per year, donations can be made year-round via our virtual donor drive. Visit nlc.org/community-service/ hyphen food drive slash 2022 hyphen donor hyphen drive for more information.
3: Hi, I'm Paul Barner, your executive vice president. I'll be reading my July officer's column titled, It's Time to End the 12-Year Wait for Pension Fairness. Last year, we capped off a multi-year campaign to push postal reform legislation through Congress. By 2019 and 2020, we had helped build a broad pro-reform coalition in Washington and a bipartisan majority in both houses for the legislation. All we needed was a president who was willing to support us. President Biden filled the bill, pun intended, and signed the Postal Service Reform Act of 2022 into law in April of last year. The PSRA repealed the unfair retiree health pre-funding mandate from the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act of 2006. The PSRA slashed the Postal Service's chronic losses in half and dramatically strengthened its balance sheet. But more must be done to bolster our agency, a key part of the nation's economic, social, and political infrastructure. To be specific, we need President Biden to finish the job of strengthening the Postal Service for the long haul by taking executive action on another long-simmering battle of the Postal Service, its customers, and its employees, the battle for pension fairness from the Office of Personnel Management. Specifically, we need an executive order requiring the OPM to adopt fair methods of for the valuation of the Postal Service's Civil Service Retirement System account. Such evaluation is done annually and requires OPM to allocate responsibility for pension costs for postal employees between two accounts, the federal taxpayer account for service before 1971, when the USPS was created, and a postal USPS account for benefits associated with service in 1971, or later, after postal reorganization. Unfortunately, the methods used by OPM to allocate these costs are grossly unfair to the Postal Service. That was the finding of a 2010 Postal Regulatory Commission review of the issue ordered by Congress in the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act. The PRC hired an independent auditor, the Siegel Company, to do the review. Siegel called on the OPM to adopt private sector best practices in its annual valuation of the Postal Service's CSRS pension account, a step that would have increased the Postal Service's CSRS assets in the Civil Service Retirement and Disability Fund by between $50 billion to $55 billion in 2010. In 2011 through 2012, OPM refused to implement the PRC Siegel recommendations even though the authors of the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, Senators Tom Carper and Susan Collins, assured them that the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act gave them the authority to do precisely that. Every year since, the Postal Service has been overcharged by the OPM and the cumulative negative impact on its CSRS assets now exceeds $90 billion. As a result, the USPS expense for funding CSR benefits is nearly $2 billion per year higher than it should be. The good news is that President Biden knows this issue well. Indeed, in April 2020, then-candidate Biden mentioned the issue in his answers to our Candid Issue survey, noting, and the Obama administration fought to change the federal employee's pension funding formula to prevent the post service from overpaying into the federal government's pension fund. That is certainly true. However, at the time, 2011 through 2012, the Obama administration decided to support legislation to achieve this end instead of simply directing the OPM to implement fair allocation methods. And a bill to mandate the change, H.R. 1351, the United States Postal Services Pension Obligation Recalculation and Restoration Act of 2011, did attract a large bipartisan majority, 225 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives in 2012. But time ran out, and the ever-present Senate filibuster rule has stood in the way ever since. As with the quest for the PSRA, we cannot and will not give old pension fairness. That's why we have begun urging the Biden administration to take executive action to implement the PRC Siegel recommendations. Along with the presidents of the other three postal unions, the NALC has continued to pressure the president to use his legal authority to implement the PRC Siegel recommendations. We've employed a Washington law firm and are highlighting a financial analysis demonstrating the positive impact on the Postal Service that would result from an executive action. Ultimately, we hope to finally deliver pension fairness for the Post Service and its employees. In the months ahead, we hope to further engage with the Biden administration on this issue, our top priority in Washington during the 118th Congress. President Biden has delivered on his promise to be the most labor-friendly president in generations. Both his American Rescue Plan, which helped restore the fiscal health of the nation's multi-employer pension system, and his pro-union bipartisan infrastructure investment and jobs act have been widely held by America's labor movement. We hope that he will add to these achievements by strengthening another key part of the nation's infrastructure, the U.S. Postal Service with executive action and that he will do so soon.
0: Hello, this is Sarah Thomas, reading Vice President James D. Henry's column, titled LMOU Impasses." In my last article, we covered the 22 subject items in Article 30 to be negotiated during the local implementation period. The union and management are obligated to bargain over each of the 22 items. This means that if either side raises an issue of the subject listed items during negotiation, the other party must negotiate in good faith. If the union and management fail to obtain an agreement on a subject item or items by the end of the 30-day implementation period, an impasse will occur. I previously discussed two main arguments that management makes during the local implementation process. 1. The subject item or items are inconsistent or in conflict, and or 2. The subject item or items are an unreasonable burden. Management will use the inconsistent or in conflict argument in an attempt to eliminate language that benefits the letter carrier craft. However, the national agreement contains language in Article 30 and the local implementation MOU, which limits management's right to challenge existing local memorandum of understanding, LMOU, provisions on this matter. Management also can make the argument that existing language in the LMOU imposes an unreasonable burden on the Postal Service. If management impasses this type of argument, it has the burden to establish that the continuation of the existing provision would cause an unreasonable burden on the Postal Service. There is no such burden on the union when it seeks to change an MLOU. So, what happens when both parties have come to a dispute during the local negotiation period? Unlike the grievance procedure, sending local negotiations appeals to impasse is not a joint process. Each party is responsible for appealing its position for the disputed subject items. If one or more of the subject items are appealed to in pass, you will have to complete a separate impasse appeal form for each item that you will impasse. Be sure to include the following with each impasse appeal form: exact language, if any, of the impasse item as it appears in the LMOU, original union proposal, exact language and date discussed, management counterproposal, exact language and date discussed, if applicable, any additional proposals and counterproposals. Final Union Proposal, Exact Language and Date Discussed. Final Management Proposal, Exact Language and Date Discussed. You can send multiple impasse appeal forms with all of the information referenced above attached with a staple or paperclip in the same envelope. Send a copy of this information for each item you are appealing to three places. The Labor Relations Service Center at the U.S. Postal Service, P.O. Box 23788, Washington, D.C., 20026, the installation head, or postmaster, and your national business agent, NBA. If you want to have the best chance for success, take the following additional steps with the Impasse items package you send to your NBA. Include a copy of your current LMOU. This will be useful for the NBA in tracking or clearing the language in the current LMOU. Additionally, you can provide past LMOUs to establish the agreement passed between the parties. Write a separate cover letter to your NBA for each item being appealed. Fully explain the disputed issues and the course of negotiations. If appealed items are related, be sure to give a clear explanation. Include any additional information you have gathered to support the union's position. This will be helpful when discussing the issues or preparing for arbitration. Do not send this letter or any other additional information you have gathered to support the union's position to the Labor Relations Service Center or the Installation Head Postmaster with your impasse. If management makes its own appeal to impasse, claiming a provision is an unreasonable burden or inconsistent or in conflict with the national agreement, make sure to request and provide a copy of management's impasse. You also will want to enclose any documents management has with the impasse item or items package you send to the NBA. If management attempts to impasse an item that is outside of the 22 listed items in Article 30 of the national agreement, make sure to follow the same procedures as in impassing the 22 items. In any of these situations, also enclose any documentation they have with your impasse items package that you send to your NBA. Your NBA may need additional branch input during settlement discussions with management at the regional or area level. Please make sure your NBA knows how to contact your negotiating team. What can you do to avoid an impasse? Since the impasse is handled at a higher level, the branch should communicate with the NBA if you perceive that an impasse may occur with the subject items. The NBA can provide guidance as to how to resolve the conflict with any of the subject items. Both parties can keep the language they already have by declining to impasse it if they cannot come to an agreement. It is advised that the local implementation committee research and learn the impasse rules before negotiations begin. Do not, under any circumstances, wait until the last minute to appeal the impasse subject items. While the 2019-2023 to National Agreement expired at midnight on May 20th, the parties chose to extend negotiations. Therefore, the existing language for the National Agreement and the Local Memorandum of Understanding will remain in effect until the new National Agreement has been ratified or arbitrated.
4: Hi, this is Nicole Ryan, National Secretary-Treasurer. This is my July article titled Members on OWCP, Collection of Dues and the Per Capita Tax Roster. Branch Secretaries often contact the NELC Membership Department with questions regarding the dues payments of members who are receiving payments through the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, or OWCP, and who may or may not have been separated from the Postal Service or who may or may not have retired from the Postal Service. For active members on OWCP who remain on the branch's dues roster in a no-deduct status because they have not been separated from the Postal Service, Headquarters deducts the national per capita and state dues from the branch's reimbursement check for no-deduct members. Headquarters does not deduct local dues. The branch may seek full dues payment, national, state, and local dues, from no-deduct members, or it may choose to seek repayment from the member for only the national and state portion of the dues. Some branches choose to forgive the entire dues amount. In other words, the branch absorbs the cost of the national and state per capita. Once the branch selects a policy, all members under the same circumstances must be treated equally. See Article 7, Section 3B of the Constitution for the Government of Subordinate and Federal Branches. For members on OWCP who are separated from the Postal Service, these members will show up on the branch's biweekly dues roster as SEP, which means Separated from USPS Employment. Members listed as separated because they are on OWCP have the option of retaining their membership in NALC. These members will fall into one of two categories. The first is if they have not yet retired, they must pay active letter carrier dues until they apply for and obtain retirement status from the Office of Personnel Management, or OPM. The branch should notify the membership department in writing that the member intends to continue membership in the NALC. After notification, the membership department will list the member on the semi-annual per capita tax call, which bills branches semi-annually for national and state dues for members who are not on the dues withholding roster. It is the branch's responsibility to collect dues, national, state, and local, unless the branch has a policy in which some or all of the dues will be forgiven, and to remit the national and state portion to NELC headquarters. The second category is members who retire and receive wage loss compensation from OWCP in lieu of OPM retirement benefits. They also must be placed on the semi-annual per capita tax call as the Department of Labor does not allow for dues deductions from OWCP payments. In this instance, the branch must notify the membership department in writing that the member does not receive an annuity payment from OPM but instead receives payments from OWCP and that the member should appear on the semi-annual per capita tax roster. When a branch has a member who has failed to pay dues and the local branch seeks to discontinue the member, the branch secretary must notify my office in writing and include evidence that the branch has attempted to bill the member for the dues owed prior to requesting removal from the rolls. See Article 7, Section 4 of the Constitution for the Government of Subordinate and Federal Branches for more information. Important, branch secretaries are reminded that the completion of the semiannual branch per capita tax roster is the duty of the branch. Any semiannual branch per capita tax roster returned to the membership department that is not in final form may result in the branch being assessed $100 for investigating and calculating the per capita tax left unpaid. Instructions regarding completion of the roster are included with each semiannual per capita tax call. If you have questions, please contact the membership department for assistance. As a reminder, per capita tax calls are sent each June and December. And note, only branches with direct pay members receive a semi-annual per capita tax call. Here's another reminder. Branch presidents, secretaries and treasurers, as well as state presidents, secretaries and treasurers, have their branch bi-weekly dues roster, quarterly branch retiree dues roster, and monthly state dues rosters available to them through the members-only portal. The rosters can be sorted, downloaded, saved, and printed. Also available to branch presidents, secretaries, and treasurers is a retired member listing for their branch. The list includes all current retired members of the branch and notes which of the retired members are gold card members. Any member showing on the list is pending 1189. Notes that NELC headquarters has not yet received a form 1189 from the member.
5: Hello, I am Mac Julian, and I'll be reading my July officers column entitled, Where Are our bylaws. In my April column, I suggested that it was a good time for branches and state associations to amend or update their bylaws. I'm not sure if it was coincidental or if that column generated the uptick in bylaws submissions that we have seen in the first half of this year. Whatever the reason, I can tell you that two out of every three calls my office receives are related to bylaws. Most often, the question is, Where are our bylaws? Or how long will it take for us to get a response? So I will use my space this month to go over the process itself and break down the timeline of successfully amending your bylaws. Initiating a bylaw change begins with the stipulations provided in Article 15 of the NALC Constitution. This process must be followed prior to the submission of proposed bylaw changes To the Committee of Laws. Many branches or state associations have a committee in charge of recommending and updating bylaws, but that is not required unless it is a part of a process that is stipulated in your bylaws. What is required for branches, as noted in Article 15, is that the amendment has been submitted in writing at the last previous regular branch meeting. And suitable notification to members shall be made at least 10 days before the regular meeting at which the vote is to be taken. I have received calls from members about various aspects of the initial process of notification, and I have to refer them to the language in the Constitution. Any perceived error in a notification or presentation to the members must be dealt with on the local level. Those issues are not within the purview of the Committee of Laws. The committee is also asked on occasion to interpret branch or state bylaws. However, we are not authorized to interpret the bylaws. Our charter extends only to reviewing the proposed bylaws for compliance with the NALC constitution. So after the members have voted to approve the change, it then has to be submitted to us for final approval. Article 15 states that bylaws shall not become effective until approved by the Committee of Laws. The only exception to this is the change of dues, initiation, or reinstatement fees, or the change in the place and time of the meeting. That would not require our approval, but the changes still should be sent to us so we can update the bylaws we have on record. If you simply want to delete language in your bylaws, it still needs to be approved by the Committee of Laws and go through the Article 15 process. We make sure that this change does not result in a conflict with the Constitution. The final leg of the process is the submission to the Committee of Laws and the receiving of a decision. I had a member call and ask, We submitted our changes last week. When can we expect them back? We sent it expedited. Let me assure you that we are committed to getting them back to you as fast as we can, but please realize that we are navigating around other duties as well. The other members of the committee are Director of Life Insurance, Jim Yates, and Director of Safety and Health, Manny Peralta, who is the longest serving member on the Committee of Laws. We often go back and forth on the amendments before deciding. As chairman of the committee, My office receives the proposed changes either digitally or manually. Although I am a big fan of the Postal Service, the online digital submission through the members-only portal of our website is the fastest and most convenient way to get a quick response. Branch and state presidents, treasurers, and secretaries have access to the bylaw submission process through the members-only portal on our website. That's at NALC.org. Once your bylaw change is submitted, you can track the progress through the portal. When received, it will be acknowledged as pre-check. It is then clear to make sure that it is submitted with a copy of current bylaws and then moved to review status. That is probably the status you will see more than any other notification. But in review, a lot is happening. First, I go over the proposed bylaw change and make my initial ruling based on the Constitution, past presidential rulings, and sometimes legal advice from our Council. I have been fortunate to have two previous Assistant Secretary Treasurers to advise me and help me move some of the proposed changes through the process. Executive Vice President Paul Barner and Secretary Treasurer Nicole Ryan have been very helpful and I appreciate their assistance. Once the initial ruling is applied, it then goes to Manny and Jim for concurrence or correction. Once we have an agreement on the final ruling, it is signed by all and you can view it on the portal before you receive the hard copy in the mail. You should note that it can be in review status while it is waiting to be printed in mail. I would like to provide the members with a definitive timeline for the Committee of Laws, but there are so many variables, travel, contract negotiations, etc., that can cause a delay. By the time you read this, I'm confident that all proposed changes received through May of this year have at least an initial ruling. It is the desire of our committee to keep that window of completion between 30 and 45 days. That, of course, can depend on the complexity of the submission. In future columns, I will give more insight into the rulings, especially those that we find in conflict.
6: Hi, this is Michelle McQuality, Special Assistant to the President, and I will be reading Director of City Delivery Christopher Jackson's article found on page 35 of the July Postal Record. Pilot Test Observations. Recently, the City Delivery Department visited two delivery units to observe ongoing pilot tests initiated by the Postal Service. In this month's article, I will talk about these visits and what NALC observed. Fredericksburg, Virginia e-bike testing. In August 2021, the Postal Service began pilot testing electric bicycles, e-bikes, for mail delivery on existing bicycle routes in two Florida locations, Miami Beach and St. Petersburg. In my most recent article on e-bike testing, I discussed the Postal Service's decision to expand this pilot test to the Fredericksburg, Virginia Post Office. The test at the Fredericksburg Post Office involved two walkout routes, since the unit did not have existing bicycle assignments. USPS had anticipated that e-bike testing at the Fredericksburg Post Office would last for a period of three months. However, in February, 2023, I received notification that the pilot program had been extended. In May, City Delivery staff members visited the Fredericksburg Post Office to monitor the ongoing test. During the visit, NALC observed that a housing shed had been constructed in the parking lot of the unit for storage of the e-bikes. The two carriers assigned to the e-bikes loaded the bikes in the parking lot along with the other letter carriers. Previously, the e-bikes had been stored and loaded on the workroom floor, inside of the delivery unit. Carriers who regularly use the e-bikes in the Fredericksburg pilot reported that completing their assignments takes about the same amount of time whether or not they are using the e-bikes. While a city carrier assistant, TCA, recently assigned to one of the routes in the pilot reported that he did not mind using the e-bike, both carriers preferred to instead use their push carts on the assignments. The two carriers also agreed on many of the negatives related to the use of the e-bikes such as difficulty biking uphill, vehicles passing too close, and parking issues. For more information on the e-bike pilots, read my September 2021 and December 2022 postal record columns. Athens, Georgia, SNDC. In my April article for the postal record, I shared information regarding three separate pilot tests the Postal Service initiated at the First Sorting and Delivery Center, SNDC, in Athens, Georgia. The Postal Service is establishing SNDCs across the country as part of its long-term strategic plan called the Delivering for America Plan. Members of my staff visited this SNDC in June to observe the three pilot tests being conducted by USPS. Electronic Accountable Lockers The Postal Service introduced this pilot program in early October 2022, hoping to improve record-keeping and increase security of the accountable process. USPS installed a total of five locker banks with 156 available slots at the SNDC to replace the registry cages. City delivery staff members were given a demonstration of the accountable locker, which requires the carrier to enter their employee identification number, EIN, into the touchscreen controls of the kiosk. Carriers reported that management often does not use the lockers, and when it does, the lockers are frequently malfunctioning. During the visit, it was observed that three of the four lockers did not appear to be operable. Electronic employee lockers The Postal Service explained when the program started in late October 2022 that the lockers were intended to update employee lockers with a permanent and more secure place to store their personal items. The lockers replaced all existing personal item storage locations at the SNDC. Carriers reported that the new employee lockers were not functioning properly and that they often had difficulty retrieving personal items from the lockers. City delivery staff members observed that five of the six employee locker banks were not functioning. Electronic arrow key cabinets. Another pilot test started in late December, 2022. USPS hopes that electronic cabinets will automate and improve security of the arrow key process. Two cabinets were installed at the SNDC, replacing the existing arrow key system. To obtain arrow keys from the cabinet, carriers typed their EIN into the touchscreen controls, and the key assigned to them was released from its slot. City delivery staff members have observed many carriers using the devices, and the carriers reported that these cabinets worked well. More information regarding the SNDCs can be found in the staff report written by Special Assistant to the President, Doug Lape, that appeared in the April issue of the Postal Record. There's much to consider and evaluate with these tests. Any concerns identified during the site visits will be included in my ongoing discussions with the Postal Service. I will continue to monitor these initiatives and provide the membership with updates. I want to thank the carriers of the Fredericksburg, Virginia Post Office and the Athens, Georgia SNDC for welcoming my staff and providing valuable insight, as well as for their commitment to these pilot tests. As always, my utmost gratitude goes out to all city carriers as you continue to provide excellent service to every customer every day.
7: Hello, this is Manny Peralta, Director of Safety and Health. My July article is on the subject of OSHA and heat exposure again. In my April column, I gave an update on heat illness injury citations that had been issued in Des Moines, Iowa in 2016, wherein I committed to updating you on the final outcome. On June second, the, the Postal Service and the U.S. Department of Labor, with the NALC as a party to the proceedings, reached an agreement following a remand from the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, OSHRC, it was agreed that the USPS was withdrawing its contest with prejudice. Below you will find the information I believe to be most relevant for our future use. Stipulation and Settlement Agreement The Secretary of Labor, the United States Department of Labor, hereinafter referred to as the Secretary, and the United States Postal Service, hereinafter referred to as the Respondent, stipulate and agree as follows. Based on a reevaluation of the evidence the Secretary hereby amends Citation 1, Item 1 as follows. Citation 1, Item 1 shall be reclassified as a serious violation of Section 5A1 of the OSH Act. Additionally, the AVD for Citation 1, Item 1 shall be amended as follows. OSH Act of 1970, Section 5A1. The employer did not furnish employment in a place of employment, which were free from recognized hazards that were causing or likely to cause death or serious physical harm to employees, and that employees were exposed to the following recognized hazards when it failed to fully train all supervisory staff in the recognition of the symptoms of heat-related illness and the appropriate responses to report symptoms of heat-related illness. Subsection A. On or about June 9, 2016, employees performing their mail delivery duties were exposed at 9.54 a.m. to a heat index of 86.6 degrees and at about 1.54 p.m. a heat index of 93. On or about July 21, 2016, employees performing their mail delivery duties were exposed at about 8.54 a.m. with a heat index of 92.1 and at about 1.54 p.m., a heat index of 111.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Feasible and acceptable means of hazard abatement include fully training all supervisory staff in the recognition of the symptoms of heat-related illness and in the appropriate response to reported symptoms of heat-related illness, my emphasis added. The citation and notification of penalty is deemed amended accordingly. Subsection A and B is a recognition that the Department of Labor, OSHA, proved that our carriers in Des Moines were in fact exposed to a recognized hazard when combining temperature and humidity. Further, the USPS was required to admit that it had failed to train each and every supervisor to recognize the hazard our carriers faced. This information should be used in support of grievances where we are asserting that management failed to train its supervisors to provide us with a safe work environment. The above is an example of the hard work of the Department of Labor when it serves labor. The inspection number in this case is one one five eight six five three, and the OSHA docketing number for this case is 16-1813. Next item is a privilege to have attended. Seniority is a union privilege. On June the 8th, I was honored to attend the retirement of the most senior letter carrier in the United States. Johnny Bell became a letter carrier after serving in the Navy for four years. He had a seniority date of February 11th, 1956. He retired at the age of 91 with the smile and a spirit that makes you smile when you're with him. I had the chance to speak with him for a while and share a comment that made me laugh. As he said, when they started pinging him on his route, he decided it was time to retire. Johnny, please enjoy your family for many happy years in retirement. It was a pleasure to meet you and your family. Thank you.
8: Hi, I'm Daniel Toth. I'm the Director of Retired Members. I'll be reading my July 2023 Postal Record article titled Retirement Updates. This month's retirement column features updates on legislation, resources, and benefits. Postal Service Health Benefits The NELC Retirement Department has received numerous calls asking about the Postal Service Health Benefit, PSHB, program, which is a new program within the Federal Employees Health Benefits, (FEHB) program. The Office of Personnel Management, OPM, which administers the FEEB and the PSHB programs, has posted frequently asked questions on its website under the Insurance section, which many may find useful. The Postal Service also has started providing information on Light Blue about the PSHB. The important thing to understand is that no one is going to get kicked off their health insurance benefits because of the transition to the PSHB. Annuitants who are, as of January 1st, 2025, not currently participating in Medicare Part B are not required to enroll in Part B to continue health insurance coverage in the new PSHB program. Annuitants who are, as of January 1, 2025, already enrolled in Part B are required to remain enrolled in Part B to continue coverage under the PSHB. Annuitants who are entitled to Medicare Part A prior to January 1, 2024 and have not enrolled in Medicare Part B may be able to participate in the special enrollment period for Medicare Part B that will start on April 1, 2024. Those who enroll during the special enrollment period will not need to pay the late enrollment penalty. Eligibility letters will be sent to annuitants and eligible family members in early 2024. Specific PSHB plan options and premium information will be available in October 2024. OPM Retirement Quick Guide OPM has released a quick and easy three-page guide geared towards those applying for retirement. This convenient guide provides an overview of the application process with estimated timeframes for each step. OPM has stated that it will update this guide monthly based on the current timeframes to keep applicants informed of any potential delays. The quick guide can be found by going to opm.gov and navigating to the Retirement section. Retiree Cost of Living Adjustments The 2024 Cost of Living Adjustments, COLAs, for Civil Service Retirement CSRS and Federal Employees Retirement System FERS benefits are based on the increase in the average CPI-W between the third quarter of 2022 and the third quarter of 2023. Based on the April 2023 CPI-W, the 2024 CSRS and FERS goals are currently projected to be 2%. This is just a projection and is subject to change. The retiree COLA calculation will be finalized in October 2023 after the CPI-W from the previous month is released. CSRS annuities receive full COLAs. COLAs for FERS annuities are payable for retirees 62 and older and may be reduced by up to one percentage point from the increase in the CPI. Annual Leave Carryover The NALC and the United States Postal Service have agreed to the Memorandum of Understanding M-1993 in NALC's Material Reference System, extending the annual leave carryover limit. Regular workforce career employees covered by the USPS-NALC National Agreement may carry over 520 hours of accumulated annual leave from leave year 2023 to leave year 2024. This MOU will expire on December 31, 2024. Social Security Fairness Act, S-597 and H.R. 82 Senators Sherrod Brown, Democrat of Ohio, and Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, reintroduced the bipartisan Social Security Fairness Act, S-597, in the Senate on March 1st. This bill is up to 44 co-sponsors so far. The bill, which is identical to legislation introduced in the House, H.R. 82, in January by Reps Garrett Graves, Republican from Louisiana, and Abigail Smanberger, Democrat from Virginia, would repeal the Government Pension Offset, GPO, and the Windfall Elimination Provision, WEP. The GPO and WEP are parts of Social Security law that unfairly reduce or sometimes eliminate Social Security benefits for millions of federal annuitants, including former CSRS letter carriers. H.R. 82 has 278 co-sponsors at this time. The WEP reduces earned Social Security benefits for CSRS and FERS employees who also receive a public pension from another job not covered by Social Security. In addition, WEP affects employees who move from a job in which they earn Social Security to a job where they do not earn the Social Security benefit. GPO affects CSRS employees and spousal benefits of people who work as federal, state, or local government employees. If the job is not covered by Social Security, GPO currently reduces by two-thirds the benefit received by surviving spouses who also collect a government pension.
9: Hi. I'm Jim Yates, your NALC Director of Life Insurance. I'll be reading my July Officers column titled Unclaimed Property. Each year, the Mutual Benefit Association, the MBA, along with many other financial institutions, has the obligation of reporting unclaimed property to each state's Treasury Department. The majority of MBA's unclaimed property is money belonging to policyholders who never cash their checks from MBA or instances where we could not find the beneficiary of a life insurance policy. Another example of unclaimed property that would be turned over to the state is a bank account that has had no activity for a period of time. MBA, like all insurance companies, makes several attempts to contact policyholders about these funds that are due to them before turning the money over to the various state treasury departments. Most of our outstanding checks are dividend payments that are often small amounts, though some can be for several hundred dollars. A long forgotten bank account could be much more. In addition to following up on uncashed dividend checks, MBA matches death records provided by one of our vendors against our. In addition to following up on uncashed dividend checks, MBA matches death records provided by one of our vendors against our active policy files. This provides us with notice of the death of one of our policyholders, but it does not always help us find the beneficiary who is entitled to the proceeds of the insurance policy. The value of these insurance policies is often several thousand dollars And would best be paid directly to the beneficiary whom the policyholder has designated rather than remitted to the state as director of mba i have a legal and fiduciary responsibility to pay our policyholders or their beneficiaries the funds that are due and to minimize the amount of these funds that we remit to the state treasury departments this article highlights some of the actions that mba takes to minimize its unclaimed property obligation and informs you of some of the things you can do to minimize the risk that funds that are due to you will be turned over to the state. It is important to note that not only does MBA perform its unclaimed property due diligence, but that all insurance companies, banks, and other financial institutions may be making similar attempts to contact their policyholders' payees about unclaimed property prior to turning the funds over to their state of jurisdiction. What does MBA do to find policyholders or beneficiaries who have unclaimed funds? We send several letters to policyholders informing them of checks that have not cleared and of how to receive a replacement check for the money that they are due. We traditionally have had good luck with this method, but we do not always have a current address for the policyholder. In addition, when we have life insurance benefit payments We use internet search software to locate the beneficiary we have on file or possible relatives of the beneficiary. This method generally works well, however, it does not always result in finding the payee. Things you should do. Cash any checks within 90 days of the date they were issued or return them to the MBA for reissue. Maintain contact with your financial institutions and inform them of any address changes or changes in ownership. Banks also have an unclaimed property obligation and will remit property to the state after a certain period of inactivity in an account. Unpaid fees on safe deposit boxes may lead to the box contents being turned over to the state. Check statements and correspondence from MBA or other financial institutions that may require a response and respond accordingly. Maintain copies of important documents and make sure that family members know where they are kept. Periodically review your beneficiary designations. This is extremely important as we are required to pay the beneficiary on file with the MBA even if those individuals listed aren't important in your life today. We have paid more than one benefit payment to a divorced spouse because the policyholder's beneficiary designation was not up to date. See my January 2023 Postal Record article for more information about beneficiaries. In addition to those items listed above, I suggest that you also check your state's unclaimed property website. Most states' websites are easy to navigate and normally have a location where you can search for unclaimed property that has been turned over to the state. You can periodically do an internet search of the states where you have lived to see whether there have been any funds remitted to the state that belong to you or a close family member. Each state has procedures to claim unclaimed property that it has received. It is often easier to do the little things that will ensure that your hard-earned money isn't misplaced than to take the steps necessary to recover this money from the state's Treasury Department. For more information regarding any of the MBA products, please call the MBA office toll-free at 800-424-5184, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., or call 202-638-4318. Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You may also visit our website at NALC.org MBA.
10: Hello, this is Stephanie Stewart, your Director of Health Benefits. And for my July Officers Column, I would like to talk about the benefits of the Cigna OAP Network. Throughout the NALC Health Benefit Plan's history, one of its main goals has been to provide members with a comprehensive and cost-effective federal employee's health benefit program insurance package. We continue to recognize the need for our members to get the best value for each health care dollar spent. With that in mind, we continually evaluate cost-saving strategies and programs that could benefit members by lowering out-of-pocket costs. Beginning in July of 2011, one of those strategies was partnering with Cigna to implement a shared administration Open Access Plus OAP network for our members. Not only did this network offer a choice of providers and facilities that had passed rigorous credentialing standards, it also provided greater savings that were passed on to our members without compromising access to qualified in-network care. A few areas where members can save by choosing a network hospital or a network provider are the following. 100% coverage for maternity benefits for hospitalization, delivery, anesthesia, and other services. A $25 copayment per office for outpatient visits or consultations. And 100% coverage for medically necessary laboratory services provided by LabCorp or Quest Diagnostics. More than 12 years later, the Cigna OAP network continues to have a large national presence with more than 9,000 general acute care hospitals, more than 24,000 facilities, and an overwhelming 4 million-plus specialists and primary care physicians. Keep in mind that while we do not require to use a provider from this network, there are some factors to consider. If you use an out-of-network provider, you may be billed the balance or held responsible for a greater patient cost share. What this means for members is that when a provider participates in the OAP or is considered in-network, there is a contract in place outlining the maximum amount that can be charged for a service. However, when a provider does not participate in the OAP or is considered out-of-network, There is no contract in place, and the provider can charge a higher rate for the same service, which results in a higher bill for the patient. Another advantage of choosing from the OAP network is the savings you will receive for unexpected services. Even when you use a Cigna OAP hospital or physician, some of the professionals who provide related services may neither be in the network nor considered a preferred provider. When this happens, we understand that the member may not have control or even knowledge of the situation. So if the services are rendered at a network hospital or network ambulatory surgical center, we will process charges for radiology, laboratory, electrocardiogram, the administration of anesthesia, the emergency room visit, and inpatient or outpatient observation physician's visits at the network level, even when the visit is billed by an out-of-network provider. If you do not choose to use an OAP hospital or physician, the out-of-network benefits will apply for all services billed, which can result in a significant expense. You can locate an OAP provider or hospital or verify that your provider participates in the OAP network by calling 877-222-NALC, which is 6252. You can also search for a provider at NALCHBP.org by following these steps. Go to NALCHBP.org. Under Quick Links, click on Cigna Healthcare OAP Online Provider Directory, type in the address or zip code of the area, select whether you want to search by doctor type, doctor name, or health facilities. At this point, you can create an account or continue as a guest. The in-network results will display. Once you have accessed the OAP online directory, helpful categorizing tools are available to narrow your search by distance, specialties, those accepting new patients, and more so be sure to filter the results according to your preference. If you cannot find your doctor in the OAP Network directory, this may mean that your doctor does not participate and would be considered out of network. You can recommend that your doctor become part of the OAP Network by filling out the Provider Nomination Form located on our website under the Cigna tab. Return the forms to the NELC Health Benefit Plan, Attention Provider Nominations to 20547 Waverly Court, Ashburn, Virginia, 20149. Upon receiving the form, we will submit it to CIGNA for possible consideration. Please keep in mind that the submission of the provider nomination form is no guarantee they will be added to the network. However, we will do our best to work with Cigna to continue to expand their network using your suggestions as appropriate. Until next month, take care.
6: Hi, this is Special Assistant to the President, Michelle McQuality, and I will be reading Contract Talk, found on page 41 of the July Postal Record. Family and Medical Leave Act, FMLA. The Family and Medical Leave Act, FMLA, is a federal law that Congress enacted in 1993 requiring many employers, including the Postal Service, to grant eligible employees time off work without penalty under certain conditions. Article 10 of the National Agreement incorporates this law into the leave program for city letter carriers. The FMLA guarantees eligible letter carriers up to 12 weeks of leave each postal leave year for a new child in the family by birth by adoption or by placement in foster care, or for caring for a family member with a serious health condition, or for the employee's own serious health condition that prevents him or her from performing the job, or qualifying exigencies arising out of the fact that the employee's family member is on or has been notified of covered active duty in the armed forces. The FMLA also guarantees eligible letter carriers up to 26 weeks of leave in a single 12-month period to care for a covered service member with a serious injury or illness if that service member is their spouse, son, daughter, parent, or next of kin. The FMLA guarantees time off, whether paid or unpaid. The type of leave taken depends on the reasons for the leave and the usual postal leave regulations. Eligibility criteria, medical certification guidelines, and other detailed rules govern letter carrier rights to FMLA leave. The rules are found in the federal law and in the Code of Federal Regulations, Chapter 29 CFR, Part 825. The national parties jointly created a summary overview of the Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993, dated November 24, 2015, M. 1866. This document provides a mutual understanding of the national parties on issues related to the FMLA and can be found in NALC's Materials Reference System, MRS, at NALC.org MRS. According to the Act, employers are prohibited from interfering with, restraining, or denying the exercise of any rights provided by FMLA. The employer cannot retaliate against an employee for exercising or attempting to exercise FMLA rights. Employers cannot use the taking of FMLA leave as a negative factor in employment actions, such as hiring, promotions, or disciplinary actions. And similarly, FMLA-covered absences may not be used in any disciplinary actions. Employees cannot waive, nor may employers induce employees to waive, their prospective rights under FMLA. FMLA is not a separate category of leave and does not provide letter carriers with any additional paid leave. Sick and annual leave accrual amounts remain the same as what carriers are entitled to under the national agreement. Employees may use sick leave, annual leave, or leave without pay LWAP, for FMLA-protected absences in accordance with current leave policies. Though city carrier assistants (CCAs) earn only up to 13 days of annual leave per year, CCAs are covered under FMLA and are eligible to use both annual leave and Lwop for FMLA-protected absences. All employees, including CCAs, are eligible for FMLA-protected leave if they meet two requirements. One, the employee must have worked for the Postal Service for at least 12 months, and two, must have accrued at least 1,250 work hours during the 12-month period immediately preceding the leave. CCA breaks in service do not cancel out accrued time of service for FMLA purposes since the 12 months do not have to be consecutive. The months of service may be accrued at any time during the seven-year period immediately preceding the leave. Only actual hours worked, not time spent on paid leave, are used to determine whether an employee has met the 1,250 work hour requirement. Every eligible postal employee is entitled to take up to 12 work weeks of FMLA leave in a 12-month period for any of the reasons listed below. 1. A serious health condition that makes the employee unable to perform the essential functions of his or her job. 2. To care for the employee's spouse, child, or parent who has a serious health condition. Such care may involve instances where the family member is unable to care for his or her own medical safety or other needs because of a serious health condition, or needs help in being transported to the healthcare provider. Such care also might involve providing psychological comfort and reassurance to the family member with a serious health condition. Three, the birth of a child and to bond with the newborn child within one year of birth. Both mothers and fathers have the same right to take FMLA leave for the birth of a child. Birth and bonding leave must be taken as a continuous block of leave unless the Postal Service agrees to allow intermittent leave. However, if a child has a serious health condition, a parent is entitled to use FMLA leave intermittently or to work a reduced schedule to care for the child even without an agreement in place with the employer. 4. The placement with the employee of a child under adoption or foster care and to bond with the newly placed child within one year of placement. FMLA leave may be taken before the actual placement or adoption of a child if an absence from work is required for the placement or adoption or foster care to proceed. For example, the employee may be entitled to FMLA leave to attend counseling sessions, appear in court, consult with his or her attorney, or travel to another country to complete an adoption. FMLA leave to bond with a child after placement must be taken as a continuous block of leave unless the Postal Service agrees to allow intermittent leave. 5. Any qualifying exigency arising out of the fact that the employee's spouse, son, daughter, or parent is a covered military member on covered active duty. Qualifying exigencies are situations arising from the military deployment of an employee's spouse, son, daughter, or parent to a foreign country. Qualifying exigencies for which an employee may take FMLA leave include making alternative child care arrangements for a child of the military member when the deployment of the military member necessitates a change in the existing child care arrangement, attending certain military ceremonies and briefings, taking leave to spend time with a military member on rest and recuperation leave during a deployment, making financial or legal arrangements to address a covered military member's absence, or engaging in certain activities related to the care of the parent Of the military member while the military member is on covered active duty. An eligible employee also may take up to 26 work weeks of FMLA military caregiver leave in a single 12 month period to care for a covered service member, current member or veteran of the National Guard, Reserves, or Regular Armed Forces, with a serious injury or illness incurred or aggravated in the line of duty if the employee is the spouse, son, daughter, parent, or next of kin of the covered service member. Under the law, FMLA has specific definitions for family members. A parent is defined as a biological, adoptive, step, or foster parent, or an in loco parentis. An in loco parentis is a person who acts as a parent toward a son or daughter, or a person who had such responsibility for the employee when the employee was a child. A spouse is defined as the other person with whom an individual entered into a marriage as defined by the applicable state laws where the marriage occurred. This includes common-law marriages. For the purposes of applying the FMLA, all legally married couples who are otherwise eligible for FMLA-protected leave can now take such leave for a qualifying FMLA reason, regardless of where they live or work. A son or daughter is defined as biological adopted foster in loco parentis, defined above under the definition of parent, legal ward or stepchild under the age of 18, or a child 18 or over who has a disability as defined under the Rehabilitation Act, and where the disability makes the person incapable of self care. DEF MLA also has created several separate definitions of family members for both categories of military family leave. Son or daughter, for the purposes of qualifying exigency leave, means the employee's biological child, adopted child, foster child, stepchild, legal ward or a child for whom the employee stood in loco parentis who is on covered active duty or call to covered active duty status, regardless of age. For purposes of military caregiver leave, a son or daughter of a covered service member is the service member's biological, adopted or foster child, stepchild, legal ward, or a child for whom the service member stood in loco parentis and who is of any age. Additionally, for military caregiver leave, A parent of a covered service member is a covered service member's biological, adoptive, step, or foster parent, or any other individual who stood in loco parentis to the covered service member. Next of kin of a covered service member, for purposes of military caregiver leave, is the nearest blood relative, other than the covered service member's spouse, parent, son, or daughter, in the following order of priority blood relatives who have been granted legal custody of the covered service member by court decree or statutory provisions, brothers and sisters, grandparents, aunts and uncles, and first cousins, unless the covered service member has specifically designated in writing another blood relative as his or her nearest blood relative for purposes of military caregiver leave under FMLA. When the need for FMLA leave is foreseeable, for example, pregnancy, employees should notify management of the need for leave and provide appropriate sporting documentation, PS Form 3971, Request for or Notification of Absence, at least 30 days before the absence is to begin. If 30 days notice is not practicable, employees should notify management as soon as possible, i.e. the same day the employee learns of the need for leave or the next business day. When the need for leave is not foreseeable, an employee must comply with the employer's usual and customary notice and procedural requirements for requesting leave. Employees must provide certification for FMLA-covered absences to the Postal Service within 15 days of the date of the absence, unless not practicable under the circumstances despite the employee's diligent good-faith efforts, and correct insufficient certification within seven days, unless not practicable under the circumstances despite the employee's diligent good faith efforts. The certification may be in any format, including the NALC FMLA forms, if it provides the information required for certification by the implementing regulations of the FMLA. These forms can be found on the NALC website under Workplace Issues, Resources, FMLA. Can management require supporting documentation for an absence of three days or less for an employee's absence to be protected under the FMLA? In M. 1866, the parties agreed. The Postal Service may require an employee's leave to be supported by an FMLA medical certification unless waived by management in order for the absence to be protected. When an employee uses leave due to a condition already supported by an FMLA certification, the employee is not required to provide another certification in order for the absence to be FMLA protected. Keep in mind, in accordance with the Employee Labor Relations Manual, ELM, Section 513, if an employee uses sick leave for absences of more than three days, the employee is required to submit medical documentation or other acceptable evidence of incapacity for work or of the need to care for a family member, and if requested, substantiation of the family relationship, even if the absence is due to a condition that is already supported by FMLA certification. If you have a situation that qualifies for absences under the provisions of the Family and Medical Leave Act, make sure to exercise your rights outlined above to protect yourself. If you have any additional questions or concerns about the FMLA, you should consult with your shop steward or NALC branch officer.
2: On page 45 is Assistant to the President for Community Services' Christina Vella-Davidson Staff Report. Thank you. Read by Mike Shea After two of the most horrific years of our lives, we are blessed to have made it to where we are today. We may not be back to where we were pre-pandemic, but we continue to move forward and work hard for the health and well-being of our members, volunteers, employees, and customers. Our accomplishments have shown us that we can adapt and remain strong. As leaders of this great union, we must be there for our members. One of the ways in which we do this is community service. By giving back, we strengthen our union and we benefit all those we represent. While we recognize that letter carrier assistance is a critical need for many, especially during difficult times, it also is of the utmost importance that we continue to try to minimize the risks as much as possible. I want to say thank you to all. Thank you for giving to your NLC Disaster Relief Foundation. Thank you for giving to the Muscular Dystrophy Association and for donating to and working the Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive. Thank you, veterans, for joining the veterans group. Thank you for being heroes and watching over your community. You are the eyes and ears of your communities and your routes. We have overcome so much together, but it did not stunt our growth. Together, we will continue to create new ways to help those in need. Sisters and brothers, we are strong and we make a difference. Unions are measured by how they represent their members and how the public views them. That is why USPS is voted American's most trusted federal agency year after year because your sisters and brothers continue to demonstrate an outstanding commitment to the public and your customers. Just a reminder, with so many disasters affecting our members, contributions to the foundation are as important as ever. Knowing that you contribute to something that directly aids you and your fellow members in a time of crisis is extremely rewarding. Donations should be sent to NLC Disaster Relief Foundation, 100 Indiana Avenue Northwest, Washington, D.C. 20001-2144. The Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and your contribution may be tax-deductible. It is recommended that you seek further advice from your tax advisor. If you have any questions, you can contact me at DisasterReliefFoundation at nalc.org. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Please stay safe, and God bless you and your families. To me, you all are heroes. On page 46 is the Veterans Group. Veterans Legislative Update. In the first six months of the 118th Congress, numerous bills that would affect veterans have been introduced and moved through Congress. These bills address some of the top issues for veterans, including health care, benefits, suicide prevention, homelessness, and more. Below is a sampling of some of these bills and how they would address veterans' unique needs. In advance of Memorial Day, the House passed three bills the week of May 22nd. VETTEC tec Authorization Act of 2023, H.R. 1669. This bill, introduced by Representatives Juan Ciscomani, Republican from Arizona, and Roe Khanna, Democrat from California, would cover costs for veterans seeking job training in high-tech industries. The Veteran Employment Through Technology Education Courses, Vet tech, Program, was created as a five-year pilot program in 2017, is set to expire next year. The bill would codify the program, which covers the cost of tuition and housing for veterans who are enrolled in a full-time technology training program and are eligible for Veterans Affairs, VA, Education Assistance under the GI Bill through September 2028. Senators Kevin Kramer, Republican from North Dakota, and Angus King, Independent from Maine, introduced a Senate Companion Bill, S-1678, on May 18th. Veterans Compensation Cost of Living Adjustment Act of 2023, S-777. This bill, introduced by Senate Committee on Veterans Affairs Chairman John Tester, Democrat from Montana, and Ranking Member Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas, passed in the Senate on March 30th and in the House on May 22nd. The legislation would provide disabled veterans and their families with a cost of living adjustment to their disability and survivor's compensation, effective December 1st. Korean American Valor Act, HR 366. House Committee on Veterans Affairs ranking member, Mark DeCano, Democrat from California, introduced HR 366. The bill would require the VA to extend healthcare benefits and related services to members of the South Korean armed forces who served in the Vietnam War. Other Pending Bills Affecting Veterans, VA Same-Day Scheduling Act of 2023, H.R. 41. Representatives Jim Baird, Republican from Indiana, introduced this bill, which would require the VA to ensure that when a veteran enrolled in the VA health system contacts the agency by phone to schedule an appointment, the scheduling must occur during that call. Healthy Foundations for Homeless Veterans Act, H.R. 645. Representative Sheila Sherfalas-McCormick, Democrat from Florida, introduced this bill, which would permanently authorize the use of certain VA funds to provide assistance, including shelter, transportation, and communication devices to veterans in need. It would provide housing to an estimated 33,000 unhoused veterans. Vet Centers for Mental Health Act of 2023, HR 733. Representatives Mickey Sherrill, Democrat from New Jersey, Tom Keene, Republican from New Jersey, and Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican from Pennsylvania, reintroduced this bill, which would expand access to vet center mental health counseling for veterans and their families. It would ensure that underserved areas have access to this care by establishing a minimum requirement of vet centers per state based on 2020 census data. Not Just a Number Act, S-928. Chairman Tester, And Senator John Boozman, Republican from Arkansas, introduced this bill, which would require the VA to comprehensively examine the factors that can best prevent veteran suicide. It would require the VA to analyze veterans' benefits usage in its annual Suicide Prevention Report and examine which VA benefits have the greatest impact on preventing suicide. Expanding Veterans' Options for Long-Term Care Act, S-495 S-495 was introduced by Chairman Tester, Ranking Member Moran, and Senators Patty Murray, Democrat from Washington, and Mike Rounds, Republican from South Dakota. The bill would create a three-year pilot program for eligible veterans to receive assisted living care paid for by the VA. Veterans and the Debt Limit Deal The Bipartisan Fiscal Responsibility Act, which President Biden signed into law on June 3, averted a default on the nation's debt while limiting federal spending. Under the law, most non-defense government agencies will receive flat budgets over the next two years. However, the VA will receive a budget increase of about 6%, or $320 billion in fiscal year 2024 compared to fiscal year 2023. The deal also included $20 billion for the Toxic Exposures Fund, TEF, the full amount that President Biden requested in his budget. The TEF covers the cost of benefits for veterans suffering from diseases caused by toxic exposure. The law also exempts veterans from the increased work requirements for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which will affect those aged 18 to 54 starting in 2024. The deal is positive news for veterans since VA officials had warned that benefits checks, medical reimbursements, and other services could have been delayed if the debt ceiling was not addressed. NALC will continue to monitor these bills and other pieces of legislation that affect our veterans members. For updates, check the Government Affairs section on NALC.org. On page 47 is the MDA report, written by Christina Vella-Davidson, read by Mike Shea. July 2023 Branch Challenge. It is time for the second MDA Branch Challenge of 2023 from July 1st through 31st. Branches can join the challenge by sending in any offline income raised to MDA Chicago office, address provided below. Branches are already registered on the MDA/NALC website. Find your branch page at mda.donordrive.com/event/nalc2023. This will be your branch's online hub for the entire year to raise money on the web, host events, and track all offline donations slash checks too. The 2023 July Branch Challenge will continue to fundraise during MDA Summer Camp. There's been a significant increase in the cost for MDA to send kids to camp this summer, and we still need your help to ensure that each child who wants to attend MDA Summer Camp has a spot. $3,000 is the average cost for one camper to attend MDA summer camp. $1,000 is the cost to provide durable medical equipment rentals for a camp location. Does your branch want to help give children the best week of the year at MDA summer camp? Branches that raise $3,000 in July will be awarded prizes and recognition in email and social media. If the challenge raises $100,000, NELC will cover the equivalent cost for 33 kids to attend summer camp this summer. We can do this together. Connect with me at any time with questions or for assistance. Remember, volunteers are always needed for MDA Summer Camp. Camp can change your life just as it changes the lives of campers. MDA Summer Camp wouldn't be possible without people like you, sisters and brothers. You can make an impact on children's lives with neuromuscular diseases during the best week of the year. MDA's mailing address. Sending in checks? Be sure to use the NALC allocation form and send it to us at Muscular Dystrophy Association, attention NALC, P.O. Box 7410354, Chicago, Illinois 60674-0354. MDA Outreach MDA is making a huge effort to reach out to as many branches as possible over the next couple of months by phone, email, or text. Some of you should have already received a Memorial Day text from MDA, but be on the lookout for more about the July Branch Challenge and engagement opportunities in the coming weeks. Update your contact info so that MDA may have an email address and mobile number for your branch president and or MDA coordinator. Connect with MDA. Please contact MDA for answers to questions, help with fundraising, or to confirm they have contact information for your branch. You can reach them at 312 Three nine two one one zero zero or NALC at MDA